Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's still morning. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Uh, We're coming to you live from very snowy Detroit, as you can see. Maybe you can't see behind me, but it's snowing. It's sticking out there. Uh, You know what else is sticking? uh Aaron is the sell-off it is sticky we are red everywhere today not everywhere I'm, I know there are some things that are up but the vast majority of things are down we are going to talk about that um yeah it's just a like a it's a strong sell-off we are in correction territory in uh, uh, across the board in the major indexes we are actually in bear market territory in the Russell which if you're into labels, that is a label. Uh, crypto getting crushed, tech getting crushed. Uh, who wants to come by the dip? I, I don't know if anyone does, frankly, at this point. But uh, we'll talk about that. We're going to have our first guest of the show of the day on uh, in a couple of minutes. We're, we're going to uh, the insurance industry. We're going to talk to uh, Kin Insurance and their CEO, Sean Harper. We're going to have Matt Hammond today to talk about uh, IPOs. We're going to have Jake Wojastic on from Trendspider, Chris Capri. Uh, from Second Skies Trading and from the Benzinga Pro Options Trading School. So, a big show. Hit the like button for us. And uh, should we start the intro? Let's do it. All right. This is Benzinga Live. Spencer Israel and producer AB. What's up, everybody? How are we doing? Someone told me buy high, sell higher. So. Let's get Matt Hammond on the show to talk to my POs. Jake Wojastic from Trend Spider. We have a. All right, so let's get my screen shared up here, and let's look at the overall market. Let's see what we got going on here today. So this is the SPY. As I said, uh, correction territory. The SPY was the last of the three major indexes to to enter a quote-unquote correction. But we are there now, Aaron, down um, about 230% today, uh, a little more than that now. We have bounce, which I guess is something, but um, SPY deep, deep in the red. QQQ, deeper in the red. Actually, we were down at one point over 3% today. We're, we're, we're down less than that now. Aaron, I saw this crazy stat this morning that Friday was the highest volume day for the Qs in at least a decade. Can you believe that? Yeah, and, and we talked about this before the show, Spencer. A lot of that is going to be option-driven, of course. We'll, we'll talk to Chris Capri about the option market right now, but... Um, last Friday, of course, was the January options expiration, so that has impacts on the market. I mean, think about. So wait, is the the volume for Qs is that for the ETF itself yep. from Invesco, yep. not the within the holdings? Yep, it just for the for the actual okay. fund. Yep. Because I was gonna say, I'd be curious how much of that volume um, came from Netflix on Friday. I mean, Netflix was the first day after Netflix was trading down 20% after its earnings, down another 10%. Interesting thought. Today. Interesting thought. And and I guess that could theoretically have an impact because the the movement of the holdings, I don't know, does it have an impact on the – because, I, I mean, we know, like, volume comes from, you know, the ETF, shares of the ETF and then options from the ETF. I don't know if it can come from. No, I mean I think it comes just from the just from the QQQ ETF, but Netflix obviously 
played a part in, true, okay, in okay, how true, low Kiki true, true. was trading on Friday, which, of course, will encourage more buying. But we said here that oftentimes you'll see this big dip after earnings, like the one we saw on Netflix. Yeah. And it makes it, it, it like our gut reaction is, oh, my God, tw- Netflix down 20 percent in a day. I got to buy the dip like Netflix isn't really worth 20 percent less than it was the day before. But oftentimes, more often than not, these stocks continue to trade lower from that point. Sometimes you'll get that gap fill immediately, but mm-hmm. uh, more often than not, stock continue to continues to show weakness from there. Uh, you can pull up Snapchat's chart as an example. Okay. Snapchat, of course, gave a, a terrible uh, earnings report last quarter in October, and you saw that leg oh down gosh. 20%, and a bunch of people came in. You see that volume. Look at that volume bar right oh. on that day um, in mid-October. What is that? Mid- like, yeah, that's, uh, that's October. That's late October. What does that eight mean though, right there? That that's that's the date. That's like that's November. Uh, oh, okay, that's November. Yeah, that's so November right there 8th. in October, where you see Snap traded down twenty percent. You see the big volume bar below there. Oh, um, how many people came in and bought shares there, thinking, okay, that or Snapchat's down twenty percent. It's got to fill this gap, come back up, and then what happens? Snapchat drops another twenty five, thirty percent. So I think we're going to see Netflix's chart when it's all said and done look similarly to this. Of especially uh, when taking into account just how weak the markets are right now for, for tech overall right now. We talked last week about uh, stocks theoretically you know, being able to go back to their pre-COVID levels. In Snapchat's case, that's $18. So we're, that's not out of the re- – that's not crazy talk at this point because we're now down to 20. We've gone from 80 to 28 in 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 three months yeah and i think you're seeing up there uh uh, why is it moving headline on benzinga pro that snap got uh, a downgrade today from wedbush i think wedbush quoted some like concerns about tiktok i guess just taking market share from snapchat wow i don't know i mean my whole bull case on snapchat for the long term has been that the younger generation kind of the kids right below me 18 to 22 right now use snapchat primarily for their like communication method like they don't even share numbers anymore they just share snapchats but i guess the idea is that um that same age group is using tiktok more but tiktok's not really a direct that's that's what i was going to ask you because you're on tiktok more than i can you is is tiktok used as a one-to-one or no but what we've seen in the past is like instagram was never like that either but now it became one yeah, they added these Snapchat they like they they, copied, yeah they copied Snapchat. They added these Snapchat like features, of course, first with the stories, yeah, um, and then with the ability to kind of just chat directly with Instagram users, share pictures. I can take a selfie of me on Snapchat or on Instagram. Sorry, send it to you, uh, Spencer, and it will yeah. de- delete automatically like Snapchat does. But I mean, unless TikTok really does something like that, where they start taking these. Uh, Snapchat-esque features and adding them, I would imagine that there's room for both in that in that demographic. That like the the kids are going to need that um, one app for communicating in between each other, and then the one app for more just like social media sharing, which is what TikTok is. Uh, wait, so real fast, I just want to go back to the cues for one second because Shelly made the astute observation that yeah, you can clearly see the huge volume bar on Friday. What happens if I just zoom way out here? Just, and this is a daily chart on the cues. Let's just zoom out like a really long time. It's, it's, it's difficult to see now. But you can kind of see the volume bar still there from last Friday. And it's a little faint. It is uh, exceeding all the craziness from March of 2020. It's exceeding the, the, uh, the sell-off we had at the end of 2018. Um, let's go back here. It Oh, man. We're really going back down to back to the... My charts only go back to 2012. Is that true on a daily? 
That's as far back as I can go on, on, on a daily chart. So uh, you can see here that candle from all the way to the right-hand side was the uh, highest volume day uh, since this chart goes back to. Um, I want to uh, give a shout-out to Dennis Dick this morning on Pre-Market Prep who made a very astute observation regarding the QQQs. Um, and we know that Dennis, Dennis does a strategy called ETF arbitrage where he trades an ETF – against the stocks that are in the ETF, and he trades stocks that are in an ETF against each other. He does it all the time, right? And why does he do that? Because it's a simple math equation, right? If an ETF is down, let's just say 1%, then all the holdings in the ETF, in the aggregate, their movements should add up to being down 1% based on their weightings and et cetera. Now, that isn't always the case. And... Um, in an, in, in an ETF like the Qs, this is a really good example, um, people associate the QQQ uh, at, with, with technology. It, they think of it as a, it is a technology ETF, which it mostly is, right? It mostly is. But there are some stocks in the, in the Qs that are not technology stocks. And wouldn't you know it, Aaron, those stocks are up today. Let's start with like F. I'm, gonna, I'm going in no particular order, okay? FOX, right? Down point, down one and a quarter percent. That's actually fallen since I last looked at. But the the point still stands because the overall market is down what? What's this buy down today? Two almost three percent. Okay, and Fox is down one and a quarter percent. So Fox is up. You can you can see it. I'm zooming for you. You can see it today. It's up relative to the rest of the market. T-Mobile up almost two and a half percent today in the green. Comcast. Up half a percent today in the green. Pepsi down 1%, which is, again, less than the overall market. So up on a relative basis. What do all these stocks have in common? They are all in the QQQ ETF. Uh, you can go to the Invesco website, download their holdings. I would also point your attention to this free resource that I use. I'll put the link in the chat. It's called ETFchannel.com. Some free, free, uh, free plugs for them. And... Um, Yes, Jay, I know a lot of them went negative, but they're still up relative. And you can just look at the hold, the non-tech holdings in this fund, in the queues. On the, and a lot of them are also, some of them are staples, too. You can get, like, like Mondelez is in there. So part of this is the, uh, the, the, the consumer staples defensive effect. But part of it is the fact that a lot of these names, frankly, are up relative to the rest of the market simply because – that's the way the math works out with the index being down what it is and tech being down way more, right? If you've got tech getting, like, let's use ARKK as a proxy, tech is getting hammered today. If you have tech getting hammered and you have the QQQs only down 3.5% and tech is down, I don't know, let's make a number five. A lot of these names today, uh, these technology names like, like Tesla, for example, is down almost 8%. And the Qs are only down three and a half percent that means you've got to have stocks that are down less than the Qs to make up for it and a lot of those names you could just see it just on your screen pull up a heat map oh that's so weird you've got some green randomly t-mobile's up today weird comcast is up today weird fox is sean kin welcome to the jungle hey there how's, how's it going guys nice yes we're on the move i, had to, I, I love had to, it it's like Zero degrees and snowy outside. I had to get some chapstick. 
before I start. Wait, where where are you based out of? Chicago. Yeah, Ooh. we're getting we're getting your weather. It's cold, man. It's cold. Yeah. <laughs> I was anyway, the, uh, uh, I'm a huge Packers fan. I was at the Packers game on Saturday, which was super disappointing. Oh, and, uh, oh, got 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 my skin's pretty dry after being out. Wait, can can I ask? Just having never been to a game like outdoors like that in the freezing. What is that like? Layers, man. You got to dress with layers. <laughs> it's cold. So, so, it's so really you cold. might must not be from Chicago originally, because most Chicago people hate Aaron Rodgers and hate the Packers. I'm I'm a I'm a native Wisconsinite, so uh, cheesehead DNA for me. Okay. All right, that's fair. Well, we, we we love the Midwest here. We're up in Detroit, so we we definitely empathize with you when it comes to the Chicago uh, Detroit winters. Although brutal. I think Chicago might even get like a little colder than Detroit. Just I think it, it probably does too, from the wind and whatnot. Yeah, the, the lake. Even effect. though we're further north, I think we get more snow, but they get more cold. Yeah, because they have the wind there. Um, anyway, Sean, we didn't have you on here to talk about the weather, though. We could do that if you want. Um, let's talk about uh, the the earnings report. As I said, uh, you guys reported earnings last week, um, and you ended the year. Uh, this is a pretty nice number. You ended the year with total uh, managed premium of a, uh, just under $105 million versus $25 million in the, uh, from the year before. Uh, can you talk about just what what drove that that growth? Yeah. So, you know, our business is really predictable. We're a direct-to-consumer business. We uh, sell uh, – we, we do homeowners insurance for folks that live in areas that are exposed to extreme weather. So – not, I'm not talking about snow and cold. I'm actually talking about like hurricanes and wildfires and uh, you know really bad stuff that can 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 mess up your house. And so you know because we've gotten really good at using alternative data sources to understand and price that risk accurately. We sell that directly to the consumer. So there's a couple things going on. First of all, our business model is super super predictable. Right, we know. You know, we have very solid unit economics. And I know that if I put in about 500 bucks to this machine, it gets me a new customer. And the new customer <clears throat> generates about $1,700 a premium a year. So part of it's just math, right? Like we knew this was going to happen. We knew we were going to spend more money on marketing. We get more customers. Um, the other part of it that's happening is, uh, you know, insurance companies, our average competitor is like 100 years old. And these guys just have a really, really hard time adapting to a world that's changed a lot, right? Consumer preferences have changed. The weather has changed. Technology has changed a lot. And it's really hard for them to deliver the type of customer experience that customers nowadays want. And so customers are responding to that. And we hear every day, you know, I I heard of Ken because my mom has Ken. <laughs> I heard of Ken because the mayor of my town told me about it. Like the word is spreading. And, you know, it's, it's really making it a lot easier to get, get more yeah. customers. Sean, can you just speak a little bit like, like more about the, the, like your, your model in, in a time like this, where um, I forgot the phrase that you used before, but I mean, just natural disasters, right? I mean, they, they're happening more and more frequently to more and more ge different geographies and different regions. So like, what does that do for a business like yours? Well, it's, in some ways, it makes it harder, right? So the types of risk models, the types of analysis, the types of data that insurance companies have historically relied upon are, are not enough in many cases, right? Your understanding of the risk, you know, the, of the weather, right? What type of weather you expect? And then how resilient is this specific building going to be 
to the weather that it's likely to be exposed to is not something that's within the capability set of the legacy competitors. So that that makes it harder. Part of it makes it a little bit easier, especially for not, you know, traditional insurance, you have a carrier, right? They're the balance sheet, the underwriter, they're doing the claims. And then you have an agent and the agent is doing customer acquisition and servicing. Um, so during this time period, when the weather's getting worse and worse and worse, and also property values are going up and up and up, insurance is getting more expensive. Right. And so that's maybe a wash for the underwriters, right? If, if the prices follow fast enough, the increased risk, then it's a wash for the underwriters. But it's an incredibly good situation for the distributors, right? Because they're doing the same amount of work, but the premiums are really high are a lot higher, right? It's like when we started when, well, and, and so, well, so is the risk though, right? But they're not exposed to the risk, right? The distributors aren't, aren't exposed to the risk. The agent okay. isn't, they're just getting paid a commission. And so part That's of what fair. we're doing akin is we're mushing these two business models together and we're doing our own distribution. So we capture the distribution economics. And then we actually have set up a risk pool. It's called a reciprocal exchange. That's the insurance company. And that's actually owned by our policyholders. So in that way, our economics really resemble those more of an insurance distributor. Now it's an insurance distributor with a really unique product that we manufacture. It's an insurance distributor, um, you know, that, that has higher margins than a traditional insurance distributor. But that's that's one of these interesting things that's going on in the environment right now because the premiums are going up. Maybe it's a wash for the underwriters, but it's really, really great for the distributors. This, you know, this would be legacy companies like a Brown and Brown or an Aon or BRP. Um, so that, so part of it's, part of it's harder, part of it's easier, at least for part of the value chain, right? Cause the premiums are going up. Um, but the thing that that's really the biggest is just, it's changing really fast, right? Like even between last year and this year, uh, you know, everything is changing really fast, you know, consumer preferences, the real estate market, the weather, et cetera. And so what increasingly is defining one's ability to succeed in the market is your ability to change, respond to change quickly. And that, of course, is really hard if you're like this hundred-year-old company and you know running on really old technology, outsourcing all of your distribution, et cetera. It's really hard. It's like steering an aircraft carrier versus we're a lot more nimble because you know just we're built that way. You know what else is interesting is uh, the insurance space has been really, really hot in terms of um, deal flow. Right, companies going public, IPOs, SPAC, whatever. Um, and, I, and I, we've seen this previously when, when when one or two dominoes will start to fall in an industry, like the rest of them will follow. Um, so is this is this just like a a, a case of like the industry at large uh, trying to capitalize on the market, or did something fundamentally change here that made all y'all be like, hey, <laughs> now now is the time? <laughs> yeah. So I think I think a couple things happened. So first, you know. This is an industry that's very hard to enter, right? There's a lot of regulations. It requires a lot of capital. Typically, the book, the underwriting book, uh, performs worse when you're a new company versus when you're an old company. Sure. That's because the customers that are switching tend to be, on average, worse customers from a claims perspective than the ones that aren't switching. So for a variety of reasons, a really, really hard industry to enter. And so for, for a long time, for 100 years, you know, this has been a market that's really protected. Right. And so you have these these incumbent competitors who are making a ton of money and yet are pretty complacent. Right. Like they haven't needed to change 
in response to all of these changes going on in the world because because they don't there's no competitive impetus to right like capitalist society really depends on free entry and exit when you have a market that where entry is restricted it's it's really tough you know it it leads to this complacency the second thing that happened is a bunch of us saw what happened in fintech so i've been doing fintech for almost my whole career my last company was a payments company if you look at what happened in payments it looked really similar to insurance it had all these old companies mainframe software hadn't changed in a really really long time yeah we're complacent oligopoly and then you have these new tech companies come along square stripe paypal etc firm uh adian lots of them and those are now you know 10 15 years later after the beginning of of them attacking this legacy industry those are now the dominant companies in that industry right so a lot of us looked at that and we're like well where should we go next like okay well what looks similar oh insurance that actually looks really similar and so in the time period of 2015 2016 you had a lot of companies like ours getting started because you know we were all you know learned these lessons really valuable lessons doing fintech and we looked at insurance we said oh that, that looks really similar we could probably have a similar level of success there and so you know that's what led to that crop and now you know five years six years later these companies have grown a lot you know public markets at least until recently were pretty you know uh conducive to fintech companies and uh you know seemed like a good time to to go public and take advantage of that you know because first of all we reached that scale and second of all because you know it seemed seemed like an attractive environment for us yeah so you know you are going public via spac oca is the ticker uh update on, on the timeline of that yeah absolutely so we actually the we we finally got through the sec process which was okay. very thorough you know, rest assured the government is doing their job. And, um, you know, the vote is next Monday, actually. So it's okay. it's a week from today. And we're very excited about that because we've been working on this for a long, long time. Any qualms about the fact that it's been a pretty rough couple of weeks? Well, no, longer if you're in other certain sectors. But forever, for most people, it's been a, a rough couple of weeks here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's obviously not, you know, you'd rather the market be going up, right? Um, but yeah. we take a really long-term view of these things. And, you know, if you look at, we, I was talking about fintech, you know, there have been, since since payments and lending started to get taken over by tech companies, call it 15 years ago, there have been multiple booms and busts within that industry, right? Like, there was a time period when, you know, Prosper and Lending Club were trading way down and everyone was like, oh, fintech, it's gone. Okay, well, no. <laughs> like, uh, right, and even if you look at some of these companies, like, I was looking at Square and it's like, well, gosh, these guys are down a lot. They're still a fifty billion dollar market cap company. And they're still growing really fast, and so if you take a, just zoom out a little bit, I'm not all that concerned about what the market's doing this week or this month or whatever because we know that we're, you know, going after one of the biggest, most important industries in our whole economy. We know we have a very significant, you know, business model and technological edge, and there really is no. There's nothing to stop us, right? Like what? we're going to build a huge iconic company and right. that's going to happen regardless of if the stock market is up or down. This what week. would your message be to investors though, who maybe if this was a year ago, they would have been there, they already would have bought your stock, but now they are totally ready to sit this one out. They're giving pause to anything and everything, SPACs or not, frankly. What would be your message to them? You know, like if you want to buy a company with great, great, great unit economics, which we have, Right, like the IRR on a dollar of customer acquisition for us is incredibly, incredibly high. 
you know, if you want to buy, uh, right, if we if we put five hundred dollars in, it generates about seven point nine x of LTV for each for each you know customer. That's our LTV to CAC ratio. That's a great recipe in any economy, uh, and actually that ratio continues to get better as the average premium. I was talking about how all these other trends in the economy are causing the average premium to increase. That actually makes the LTV to CAC better, right? Because the LTV is higher. Um, so, you know, so if you want to invest in something that has really, really great unit economics, that's going after one of the biggest industries in the whole economy. You know, I think this is a really good place to be. Like, I might also be drinking the Kool Aid, though, right? Like, I fundamentally—I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> I fundamentally believe, and I know because I've seen it for my whole career, that like technology is a force that cannot be stopped. Like the idea that we're just going to not have innovation anymore, that this industry is still going to be run in the same backwards way that it has been run for the last hundred years seems to me like a really, really bad bet. One that's 0% likely to come through. So I'd rather bet on the future. I'd rather bet on innovation. Um, last question here, just uh, broadly speaking, Sean, can you, can you uh, speak to like how insurance companies typically perform in inflationary environments and yeah and, and what that does having you know i've never really experienced inflation in my life so like i don't really know absolutely so you know insurance companies are, are kind of interesting because they actually are one of the only industries where they experience the cost of goods before they before they know what it is right so when when the, the loss yeah. costs are going up right the cost for us this is the cost of rebuilding people's homes when the loss cost is going up, the insurance companies, they can't just say, hey, I'm going to raise my prices right now. And they can't do that because the prices in insurance are regulated. Right. So they're always going to the state regulators asking, saying, hey, last year, the loss costs were higher than they had been. Let's say they're 15 percent higher. We're going to raise rates by 15 percent to, you know, so we can stay solvent. So we can we can be stable right. for you. Right. right. And so they're always lagged. And so periods of rising loss costs are not good for insurers. Now, eventually, the loss costs stop rising, right? And the rates catch up, and then it's sort of neutral for them. Sometimes loss costs can go down, right? But not in an inflationary environment, because they're going to keep going up. So it's not great for the insurance companies. Now, however, we were talking about this before. Insurance right now is, is, is really two. There's two parts of it. There's the distributors, and there's the underwriters. So when I was talking about not being good, that's for the underwriters. For the distributors, it's actually really good because they're not exposed to the loss costs. They're getting paid a fixed commission. A typical insurance agent will make like a 15% recurring commission. And that doesn't, it, that they don't care if the loss costs are higher, right? That's borne by the underwriter. But they do benefit when the underwriter finally gets that rate through and the price goes up. Well, now the insurance distributor, insurance agent, they're getting more revenue for the same policies. And so that's really, really favorable for them. So typically you'll see, uh, you know, during periods of rising loss costs, uh, the insurance distributors will do really, really well. Their profit margins will go up and the insurance mm -hmm. underwriters won't do as well. Their profit margins will go down. Uh, that was a really good answer. Thanks for the explanation. Sean Harper is the CEO of Kane Insurance going public via SPAC merger vote date next week. OCA is your ticker. Sean, uh, a pleasure to have you back on, and uh, we will be in touch. Have a good rest of your week. Thanks, man. You too. All right.
Um, it is 12.01 here. We're going to have uh, Matt Hammond on to talk IPOs in a couple minutes. Before we bring Matt on, let's just do our very first crypto update of the day. Does that sound good? Oh, yeah. I can imagine what the heat map looks like right now. Oh, but... yeah. We can all imagine it, but let's show it. Yikes. I've lost my heat map. All right. Who out there convinced their mother, grandmother, cousin, uncle on Thanksgiving to to finally buy Bitcoin? Oh, I didn't convince anyone, thank goodness. You're probably not the favorite family member right now if you did. (laughs) I I believe at around Thanksgiving time, Bitcoin was trading about 55,000, maybe just off its all-time highs um, of about 65,000. But... I mean, since then, sheesh, we are down more than 50% off of Bitcoin's all-time highs. Uh, We've been watching it since about last week. We were kind of holding that $40,000 level for a a little bit, and we kind of said, all right, if we dip below here, we could be in in store for some more pain. We did dip below that $40,000 level. Now we're hanging out at that $35,000 level. Everyone's asking, when's the next level? When's the next floor that we're going to hit where we see that reversal? Um, I don't know. I would just suggest, and this is not investment advice. Nothing is? No. I would just chill out. Like, if you've got a lot in Bitcoin right now that is, like, money you can't afford to lose, maybe you sell some of it. Maybe you, you free up some cash. But I'm not, I'm not rushing out there right now with everything going on Yeah. to, to buy this dip. I want to see... You know, just some. I want to see some sustained movement on the upward that shows. Okay, there's there's some fear subsiding in the crypto markets. Um, buyers are coming in, and so far we haven't seen any of that the past two weeks. We haven't seen any bullish signs that the uh, you know that we're reversing, we're getting back into a bull market. Uh, Igor, I agree. Thirty thousand is critical, just like forty thousand was critical for Bitcoin. So we saw what happened when we dipped below that forty thousand. We dropped another five, six, seven, eight percent. So, um, is thirty thousand in Bitcoin the equivalent of two thousand in ETH or one? We're already at two thousand, or we were. We got dangerously close, like close. Is thirty k Bitcoin the equivalent of one thousand in ETH? I'm trying to figure out like what the equivalent is for like psychological significance. Well, um, it depends on how you're looking at it because uh, if if you're comparing them to their all time highs yeah. right now. Um, let's just do this quick math. So Ethereum okay. is is all time highs was we'll call it forty seven hundred. Okay. Um, forty seven hundred. And we're at what? We're at what now? Twenty four. Um, we'll call it. So we're down forty nine percent. No, down, we're not. We're, we're less than twenty four. We're at twenty twenty two. So we're it. down. We're down by half. That's fifty percent. Yeah, but I think it's actually a little bit more. Than what Bitcoin's down compared to its all-time highs. So what's the Bitcoin all-time high? 68? Something like that. Can we just ballpark it at sixty-eight? We'll ballpark it at sixty-eight. Say we're at. I mean, uh, 30. Bitcoin's Bitcoin is down by half. Bitcoin is down by half. ETH is down by almost half. Um, you, you want to know how you really know things are bad? Near is down. Near protocol has now lost half its value in a week. Anyway, that was your crazy gainer from the other week a few weeks ago. But look, to Aaron's point, I'm I'm inclined to agree with him. I think, frankly, if you own crypto at all and you don't know that this is par for the course, 
then you should not own crypto is is what i'm thinking right if you have like if you if, if this crypto sell-off is causing you to sweat and to lose sleep and i'll pull up the bitcoin chart right now from benzinger pro then you either a have too much money invested in crypto or b can't handle the volatility of crypto and there was nothing wrong with that not everything can be for everyone we can't all own stocks and crypto and every asset under the sun that's okay this is normal this is what crypto does yes it's down bitcoin's down by a half how many times has it fallen by half in the last decade a lot it fell from 19 to 3 thousand remember that 19 to 3 what's that 75 percent I, I can't do math in my head like that. Um, that's a big drop. So more than that, I think. I, so anyway, the point is, this is what crypto does. This is a feature, not a bug. I own a very little bit of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum for that matter. And um, I intend to buy more. I will be buying more. Um, Patrick is right. It's a risk on asset in a risk off environment. But... This is kind of how, just how crypto behaves. I mean, I feel bad for the people that are that are like, oh, then have all their money in like crypto. This sucks for them. But that that's not that would never be me. That ain't me. And so the reason I'm not sweating this is because I've got like my my Coinbase account has like several like three thousand dollars in it, which is you know money I can afford to lose. Um, so anyway, that that's the thing about Bitcoin. Hey, if you want some free Bitcoin, if you're trying to buy the dip, you get some free Bitcoin. Just go to the Voyager app, download it, use the offer code Zing. It's on the screen, Z-I-N-G. Open your account, uh, fund it with 100 bucks, make a trade, and they'll send you $50 in Bitcoin for free. Check it out, the Voyager app for that free Bitcoin. Um, yeah, I think everyone that's like crying about Bitcoin being down is... They, you know, this is what it does. There's nothing. There's nothing to see here. I, I, I feel like nothing to see. Yes, maybe there's an argument that like this is different because, what the Fed is tightening and we're in a risk-off environment for the first time in God knows how long, and we've never actually experienced Bitcoin in an inflationary environment. So who knows what that means? And Bitcoin hasn't been has not been mainstream since the Fed started started a, uh, uh, well, in a time where the Fed was raising rates. As if I don't know. That's I don't know. I, I, I just think this is what it does. So uh, I'd be more concerned here for a lot of these tech stocks than I would about crypto, frankly. Um, that's just me. So Well, I think you, – so you say you're more worried about the tech stocks than crypto right now? Yeah, yeah. I, so I think, we're, I think they're actually in – very similar kind of market cycles. Sure, I agree with that. But I think Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum are further along in that cycle. So here, let me pull up. A... Ooh, I'm not sure where you're getting at, but I, but I'm I'm excited for where, for the point you're trying to make. Okay, I'm okay. glad you. Okay, well, well, just from an overall standpoint, right? Uh, bear market is 20 percent, correct? Yeah, that's that's the label. So we've been in a bear market for crypto since. A couple months ago, twenty percent from its from Bitcoin's all time highs, which was in yeah. like uh, yeah. late October, early November. Yeah, Bitcoin just moves faster. 
Right. right. We're not even in a bear market for the Qs yet, but we will be. Well, we will be in the, by like tomorrow. <laughs> right. So I'm saying that we, we are further along in that here. I'm going to pull up an yeah. image. And this is not like I don't I don't think any image or visual aid like this is something that's like 100% everything's going to match this perfectly. But I think the, why these exist is because um, over time there are, are similarities in a lot of charts. Oh. I love this. Okay, so if I click on it, what happens? Yeah, you got to zoom out now. There you go. Okay. So it's because it might be a little bit blurry. So you've got uh, returning confidence up here at the top of a, a bull market. kind, Or not the top, but near the top of a bull market. You get that double top um, by the dip right here. Enthusiasm at the top. Um, and then you have this subtle warning, overt warning, disbelief. Um, and then so that's on a big like 15% dip. Some chop. And then you've got another big dip down, panic, uh, kind of dead cat bounce right here, get back up, more dip, discouragement, chop, wall. All right. Okay, to answer the question posed by the tweet, where do you think we are? Okay, I, I, yeah, I, this, this is what uh, Helene was asking. Where do you think we are in this on this yeah. chart of the sentiment cycle? My point in saying we are further along with crypto is I would argue uh, right where my cursor is down here, we're like here on crypto – versus like up here on tech stocks i like that take we're supposed to agree because it had uh, this week because it adds more drama but i agree with you i like that take that's a pretty good i, I i'm with you because i don't think we're all the way down here on tech stocks yet no but, but we're getting no we're getting there so so your <laughs> point is crypto right now is right but right where the pan right like uh yeah right where your mouse is right there right in this level whereas with tech we're maybe at overt warning right where we have that initial dip, like 15% is not enough for this all to have played out yet, right? Sure. Although it's, it's kind of crazy all this is happening this week because we've got some crazy earnings this week. We do. Um, and I have a feeling that in the battle between overall market sentiment versus sentiment driven by earnings this week, um, overall market sentiment is going to win. That even if a stock like Apple reports pretty good earnings um, that the overall market will continue to do what it's been doing with the share price. That's not, it's not to say that if Apple reports blowout earnings, we can't get a nice yeah. bounce on it, but does that mean then that Apple escapes bear market territory? No, I, don't no, I think it could just be a, a little bounce and then we'll continue there, but I don't know. I bet you as we see the markets, um, you know, whatever happens over the next few weeks, I bet you we see more and more of those types of graphics being thrown around social media, Twitter, and people arguing where we're at in the yeah. um, thing. And of course, like I said at the beginning, this is not like a you know hundred percent look at this chart. You'll be able to tell the future. I want to point out this joke that I almost didn't get this joke from Group Nine in the chat. I almost was like, "What is he talking? What is a seven layer? Is it?" Is, is that a market term I don't know about? Yeah. I almost didn't get that, but then I did. That was funny. There yeah. were some, uh, when this whole retail investing boom like first happened, the, yeah. you know, AMC, GameStop, crypto, all that, there were stores that were putting out, putting above signs of their dips, like buy the dip. Oh, I, oh. At like grocery stores. Like you go it. to Kroger and you'd see a buy the dip sign above. I got it. Dip. Hey, speaking of AMC, $14. Holy Frank Vina is the same. AB, what parameters are you going by to come to, the, to that conclusion? Um, GameStop. What's GameStop? Is, is he, are you 
assuming that I have facts and sources to back up my takes. He's going off his feelings, man. Yeah, this is just a gut feel. <laughs> my gut. No one knows anything. Yeah. No one knows okay, that's the thing. It, I, I will not tell you what's going to happen or if anyone out there tells you what the market is going to do. Lie. They're lying. They might have a strong, strong conviction, but they don't know. We don't know. Yeah. I'm just giving my take. And I've sat up here, been perpetually bullish. I said earlier in the month that I still think by the end of January we're, we're going to see all-time highs in the queues. I hereby rescind that statement officially. Oh, I do not anymore believe that by the end of this month we will hit all-time highs in the queues. Um, outside of that, okay, I don't I, know. I'm trying to figure out where I stand because I am like a contrarian by nature. I have to fight it all the time, um, and I was definitely pretty bear, pretty bearish. I've been bearish for the past couple of weeks at least, but I mean, again, the contrarian in me sees this straight downward action and can't help but like want just a little bit want to buy the dip just a little bit you know what i mean but i don't i don't even think that's dumb like i think so if you had a, i can't part of me just can't help it man okay but say you had a pot of cash right now a thousand dollars okay i'm not saying you go throw this thousand dollars on me in the in the in the dip right now yeah but if you were sitting on this cash that wasn't like a lifeline something that you absolutely needed would I think it's dumb to take like twenty percent of that cash, two hundred dollars, and buy the dip right now, and then hold the other eighty percent? I don't think that's dumb. I guess at all. you could do the same thing that I did in the same thing I did a couple of days before the end of the year. As I bought, like I bought Zillow, and I bought Palantir, and stocks in huge downtrends, and I just played them for rallies that didn't happen, and I got stopped out for a loss, and it was a small loss, but it was fun. It was a trade. I took a gamble and I lost. Um, Maybe you could try that. The problem is all these stocks, all these charts look so damn ugly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, Frank, I mean, to answer your question, essentially, yeah, I was just giving my gut feeling on where I thought we were in that chart. But in, <laughs> in, I mean, taking it to, to like today, what's going on with the markets, it's really easy to, to look at it and say, okay, we, we should buy the dip, whatever. We're in a trend until we're not in, in a trend, right? Yep. It, it's, it's like a Newton's law of inertia. That's a thing. Yeah, an object's going to be moving until it stops or something like that. I don't know. I haven't taken, something fi- like I haven't that. taken physics in a while. <laughs> that's inertia. An object at rest will stay at rest. An object in motion will stay in motion. Yes, that's, that, that's it. Right now, the market is going down. That's going to be the trend until it's not. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not going to try to sit up here and call the bottom on a dime yeah, like that. No. All, all in real time. Um, Maybe I'll even call it a fake out when we do get that bounce. Oh. But we'll be able to see over – you'll see it by sustained green days, right? Like two, three, four green days in a row on the queues, on the spy. Then you can know, okay, the sentiment is starting to shift. The trend is reversing. But right now, there's nothing indicating that at all. Maybe that in and of itself is a signal. I, I know we have our, ne- our next guest, so uh, we're going to bring Matt on in a second. Sadat's point w- – I thought it was a good one because I agree with it is the recent memory is that every dip has a di- is a dip to buy and V bottoms. The market just only does V bottoms. That's what it does. That's what it did in March, 2020. It's what it did in uh, December uh, 18. That's the recent memory. Of course, that's not true, but um, that's, 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 that's what we all remember. From we we saw that V bottom, but so. um, that V bottom was 
throw this word out there, unprecedented, um, especially taking into account what was going on with the Fed when they were pumping billions, trillions, Tr- trillions? Trillions, trillions of dollars into the stock market to support it. Yeah, yeah I mean, Sadat's yeah, saying right no, there, we veed because of Fed. Of we're course. not seeing that anymore. You can't expect that same V-shaped recovery, yep. that same V-shaped bounce without that Fed I, stimulus I into agree. the markets. I agree, but what if on Wednesday the Fed does a 180 on us boom bottom is in i don't know dude okay here that's the problem with the <laughs> fed right now this is what this is why i would hate to be jerome powell right now right uh, you go you go hawkish to go hard on inflation and then you go dumb the markets to, the markets crash you undo your hawkishness what do you, you do? undo your hawkishness you 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 start pumping up the markets again inflation runs hot again what do you do you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't i think you just got to try to find the middle ground and say, okay, look, we're willing to take on a little bit more of market weakness to tackle inflation, or vice versa. We're willing to take on a little bit more inflation <sighs> to, to try to save the markets. What you don't want is a complete overall recession, market crash, people lose jobs, 08, mm. 09. Stock market, not the economy. Sorry. I just had to yes, yes and no. I mean, people lost a lot of jobs in 08. It wasn't just a stock market crash. It was a whole economy-wide right, recession. Right, that was a recession. Right. Right. We're not in a recession now. No. No. But the two are not, don't have to be mutually exclusive. Like a full-on market crash can cause a full-on recession. Uh, I suppose. I suppose. Anyway, I wonder if I, should we get Matt's thoughts on all this? I mean, maybe I don't know. Maybe, wait, maybe wait. I'm actually, wrong. wait. I no, no. I don't necessarily. I don't know if I agree with you on that. On that, that a stock market crash can cause a recession. I don't even think it can. I think it inevitably leads to a recession. That's what we've always seen, right? Unfortunately, we have too few data points probably to because how many Great Depression and the 08 recession. That's all I'm going off of. And dot okay, maybe yeah. the, okay. The dot com bubble didn't lead to a recession. Uh, but then the flat, the the Black Monday, or whatever '87, that like sort of led to a mini recession in the early '90s. But it was like such a. Uh, it's like a chicken or the egg. Does a recession lead to the stock market crash, or does the market crash lead to? I think in the past, I think in the Great Depression, it was certainly the market crash, then the recession. Yeah. I think '07, '08, similar. Matt, wait, okay. Matt Hammond uh, is going to join us now. And before we ask Matt about IPOs, we got to know first and foremost, Matt Hammond, are you are you safe right now? Are you, are you okay, man? Because uh, yeah. Are- so this minute, I am. Um, the Russians have not invaded yet, but uh, we are certainly monitoring things. I have a daughter here; she's a U.S. citizen too. Um, so when they announced that they're pulling or that the U S embassy is starting to pull out non-essential personnel, that certainly got a lot of worried phone calls from home. Um, and we are kind of, you know, trying to assess what to do. The European union and the Ukrainian government are much more, uh, I would say calm. They're kind of like, look, okay, <laughs> nothing's not, nothing's fundamentally changed here. Uh, we've been, you know, Russia has been engaged with Ukraine in uh, cross-border military action since 2014. So right. if anything, you know, I'm not, I don't have deep political uh, connections or anything, but you just look at strategically, and I guess this is probably hoping more than anything, but, um, you know, if you're going to invade a country, would you sit there on the, you know, if you're going to invade someone's house, would you sit there on outside and, you know, tell them the whole time, hey, I'm going to invade your country. And they're not, Russia's not saying that. 
Um, but would you stand outside like suspiciously waiting to break in and let them bring in, you know, a bunch of ammo and enforcements and do a bunch of strategic planning before you did that? Or would you have done it, you know, earlier on when they were less prepared? Uh, it feels to me like, and again, maybe just wishful thinking or hopeful thinking that there, that this is a lot of political gamesmanship and, uh, you know, then again, why, why would I sit around and wait for that to happen? Except that I have some extenuating circumstances with my family that make it kind of difficult to just pick up and leave. So, uh, well, watching the situation very closely, there's a town hall with the virtual town hall with the U S embassy tomorrow. That'll give me a bit of a better insight and, uh, yeah, um, kind of on edge and dealing with <laughs> a train wreck of, a uh, move in my portfolio over the last week doesn't help much, but still yeah. up considerably just because, you know, IPO trading, which has really got me to where I, you know, am, uh, is just in and out. So there are some advantages to playing IPOs, especially in a hot market. Uh, the IPOs were running and those were opportunities to just pocket cash really quickly and, you know, get out and others that kind of held a little bit longer. Almost all of them are, you know, trades that I got out of a long time ago. Uh, the one that's really kicking me in the teeth is I really like Palantir long term and I was in on the IPO. I've held it all the way through the highs. Now I'm in back to the lows. I'm still up on the trade, but it's pretty humbling, I guess, to look at something like that to say, oh, yeah, no. I mean, I was certainly very bullish on it the whole year or, you know, for the last year plus. And now to be looking at where I'm at with it is kind of like, damn, uh, I guess mm -hmm. don't fall in love with stocks. But then again, you know, Matt, people, man, people I'm the say, same way. Yeah. I'm the same way, man. I mean, it, there are small positions for me, but there was a time when I was like tripled, quadrupled my money in some of these cannabis stocks and in right. uh, ARKW. Right. So I'm in the same boat. I mean, again, there are small positions, but it is it is humbling to watch a, a gainer go down from oh 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 you doubled oh now you only up are you're only up 10 percent. you know what i mean i would um, say that the last two years and i've been you know i didn't just get in i got in kind of before covid in terms of more heavily trading i've been trading since about 2014 um but it was a great year to have been getting in and it's still i'm up you know transformation radically transformed my financial situation even if things keep crashing um I mean, everything, everything I had went to zero, I still would have, like, just what I've gone to cash in has changed my life uh, financially. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, you do have to look at all of this as a learning process. Um, some notes that I made in November were like, get into cash before the end of the year. The market's going to crash. There's too much political tensions around the corner. And, like, even knowing all that, I didn't know until kind of too late, like, oh, there are things you could have done with that information. You could have bought puts in, you know, and I was saying like, definitely don't buy anything after the DocuSign, you know, when they reported earnings crashed and I had sold my Zoom position right before their earnings crash. Um, you know, I, I kind of had this knowledge or this foresight that things were going to happen, but I didn't have the um, kind of the, tools in my, you know, my, in my mind that could have allowed me to really capitalize on those things in ways that, okay, 
you know, we're not going to see people say, oh, this is generational. It's like, no, I mean, there was the dot-com uh, run. There was, uh, you know, there was this run. There will be in your lifetime other opportunities where the market crashes and the market uh, recovers. Uh, in terms of Bitcoin and crypto, you guys were talking about that earlier in the show. You know, the thing about and the reason I've never really gotten into crypto and Bitcoin is a lot of people like myself, I understand technically how the system works. I don't fundamentally understand why they have any value other than, oh, you know, uh, Michael Jordan rookie card is worth something because everybody wants it and there's scarcity. Um, with yeah. crypto, you could have every crypto be worth zero. And I don't see what actually left the market other than now a whole bunch of server farms and energy you know, bills are unpaid and worthless. Um, but whereas companies, you know, even look, look I mean, and, and you guys compare where are we in the cycle, we're at the, we're kind of, we see, now we're seeing the market crash, you know, kind of in unison, but we've been seeing this since almost November or earlier where individual stocks have been crashing really hard. I mean, if you look at any of those uh, kind of, reddit stocks oh yeah um brutal I mean, all of them are down like what 70 80 percent uh off of off of october november so the crash has and and they're all coming down even further on the um you know on this down down cycle and this kind of panic and and fud news but uh yeah some of that is real a lot of that is real um but there's also like you guys mentioned there's an opportunity for things to turn around with you know a hot, the Fed says one thing the other way, uh, people start buying in again or cut, you know, now we could, we could, people are talking about short squeezes. People are talking about, um, you know, we know there's a lot of volatility. This has obviously nothing to do with IPOs. Um, but, uh, and I am just learning so much from, and I think that's the important thing to do is while you're panicking and you know <laughs> stressing about everything is to also try to take notes on, well, what could I have learned from this? Where did I have hints of this before? When I did have sent hints of those before, what didn't I do that I could have done with what I knew uh, to take precautions about this? Uh, certainly, like even with Palantir, I thought to myself, geez, you know, going into earnings, its last earnings report, it was up at like 26, started moving up to 28. Uh, I knew it was still way overvalued and should have said to myself, I'd said to myself, like, hey, maybe you should buy puts. You know, just insurance, protect yourself a little bit. Don't have to be, it can be even way out of the money. Buy the cheap ones down near, you know, 2025. If I had bought puts out to February, at this point, they would have pretty much made up for all the losses and then some. So always be learning. Always take this as a learning experience. Nobody's an expert in this. Everybody has room to learn more. And, um, you know, I'm very humbled by this market, as I'm sure a lot of people who were feeling pretty good about themselves last November um, or even a month ago. So, uh, you know, there's always opportunities to learn. And one of the things that I've learned a ton about just to segue into it is these IPOs. And now we're learning a little bit more about how IPOs are indicative and reflective of what's going on in the market. And I think that gives us some opportunities here. So, All right, so let's, let's run through let's this go, to, Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot to discuss really. Um, other than, the fact that we have little to discuss is meaningful. Uh, last week, we really did. We saw almost all the IPOs get pulled. Uh, Juniper or Jupiter Networks, a uh, couple of REITs, the Bitcoin miner, RHDM, they obviously got pulled. 
Uh, two got rescheduled. They're on for this week. I would be surprised if they go this week, uh, FGI and SMSA. And then Averdent, which a lot of people are watching, it's like a clean energy play, also looks like it's just been pulled. Uh, so the ones that are debuting are either incredibly safe, uh, boring. You know, there was only two that went last week. One was TKLF, and that was uh, clearly one of these stealth, Chinese, sketchy, low float, $4 IPO price debuted at like 43 We talked about it on Monday on Tuesday's show because it was weird that it even debuted the day after a holiday. And by the time we were talking, it had debuted at 43 dropped all the way down to 13 when I started the show was up to 19 by the end of the show ran back up to 37 uh, baseline for about the last few days um, kind of in between 28 and 32 and then today it so this is the IPO date it debuted up here dropped came back up baseline here then completely fell out to 13, recovered all the way back up to 37. This is all in one day, you know, trading matter of minutes. And it wasn't on high volume, which was kind of strange. It wasn't like um, our, which we saw H-O-U-R. It IPO'd at 450, did a few little halts, and then steadily climbed up to 10. But it was a 1.5 million share float, and it traded 50 million shares in one day. That's not a stealth IPO. There's nothing, nobody's like controlling the share count at that. Uh, this on the whole day only traded like 2.5 million shares of a 6 million uh, share float. Um, So clearly the volume was being uh, constrained. We saw it dip run. If you can day trade this stuff, good for you. I can't, I can only say it's a, it was clearly a stealth setup, meaning I think that it's more money laundering and some other shenanigans going on. And we saw, you know, we saw a movement that otherwise makes almost no sense. So uh, that was one. And then if you look at it now, I believe it's trading at, okay, I'll bring it here. Uh, today, it, today it dropped from, today it dropped from 30 is kind of hanging on here. And now it's at uh, 610. So wow. my advice to these is don't try to like some people maybe got lucky and caught this 13 because it bottomed at 13 before. So they thought, oh, I'll start buying here and, you know, went up into a halt. Wow. I feel like this is the exact opposite amount of what we were seeing last summer. So we were seeing them, but then I think some of it was, you know, who knows, maybe I ruined it. Uh, but certainly as people <laughs> caught on to it. I don't um, think that's it. Uh, I mean, it's not insane. I definitely, I mean, we've saw, you know, how many shares traded in the opening minute of this? 1,000 no, shares. That's it? Yeah. So, it, it, I mean, that's, I was buying 1,000 shares on the ones that when I first caught on to this, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. Opening volume, 1,087 shares. Then we had uh, 37 and then 3,500 shares on the in the second minute out of the opening halt. So it's not crazy to think that, you know, it didn't take much attention to, um, you know, to blow out these trades. But we did start seeing uh, JZXN last year was one of them that they did this to where they just stopped giving retail traders the opportunity to really get in on them um, unless they really fooled the whole 
you know, with SOPA, for example, we got caught off guard. I actually tried to get in on that one and um, missed the entry because the Weeble stopped showing me the indication price, which was probably a good sign that it was stealth and should have raised it a little bit. But, you know, if they blow it up to here and they're, I mean, I don't even quite understand. It, it certainly leads me to have a bunch of questions because there were, you can see the level two orders coming in before the IPO. And you can see a lot more orders in the 2025 range, both on the buy side and the sell side. So why did they decide to pair it up and go live up here? And who makes that decision? I thought it was market makers. Other people said it's the underwriters. I have a contact now with one of the underwriting companies that I'm going to grill a little bit on you know, who really decides this because they're certainly... It, it, a, it's a little bit of both in my, to my knowledge. But how are they doing that? I mean, this isn't 9.30 a.m. This is uh, 10... You know, this was 10.01 and these don't go live at any certain time. They go live when they feel like going live. And certainly different underwriters have different reputations for uh, how they take things, uh, you know, how they allow the debut to occur with people saying things like, oh, well, when it's um, Morgan Stanley, they're more like fair about it. And I think they did the uh, they did the TPG IPO, they were the the lead underwriter there, and TPG they kept it very fair, and it even smelled like it when you know you saw the pre IPO indication, and they were showing thirty three dollars with a heavy buy side imbalance, like hundred two or three hundred thousand shares on the buy side, and said what, yeah. you know, they just let it sit there, and you think well, why don't they raise it? Why don't they raise it to you know to reduce the buy side imbalance and increase the sell side imbalance? And it was just they didn't want to do that in the cold market that it was debuting because they didn't want it to just crash on the open. At least that's the read I got from other people. And that's what I, you know, what I personally believe. Whereas we see Goldman Sachs generally just rip it as high as they can. Screw the retail investor. We don't care. Um, you know, whoever sells on the debut, you know, who is the IPO buyer. Great. Uh, good for you. You got the IPO flip. Those are the people we're trying to keep happy. And otherwise, you know market be damned, uh, look out below every man for himself. So when I see, and certainly I've learned over the last two years of doing this, that there's certain underwriters, especially in the low float world where, you know, you say, oh, they, they've done a pretty good, they've been consistently, you know, pretty good. Uh, they've been consistently super volatile. They've been, um, you know, others, people just don't even want to play with like Roth capital, for example. Uh, right. is something that people just kind of stay away from for, for whatever reason. Bosted Securities, Network One Financial, Univest, they're kind of usual suspects with these uh, stealth IPOs. Uh, Maxim, EF Hutton, uh, some of these others are kind of like, well, they're probably trying to do a good job for a company. But they're not necessarily stealth. Uh, so so something those... else to consider is mm -hmm. if you are a investor, like, like if you're an institution, Okay, um, and you, you know, have a relationship with these underwriters, right? Who, whoever, it doesn't matter who. Um, and the underwriter comes to you and says, "Hey, listen, I've got this amazing IPO that I know is the whole market's going to want in six. It's coming in like a couple of months. However, next week, I've got this dog shit." Yeah. Between you and me, between you and me, it's dog shoot IPO. Okay, now um, I've got to get. I've got to sell twenty million shares of this thing. Will you buy some? Now you're the you're, you're the institution, 
and you say, hmm, you do the internal calculus in your head. Well, he's got this mega IPO coming down in a couple of months. I want a piece of that action. Hmm. Yeah, I could probably stomach this. I'll bite the bullet. I'll buy some of the dog shit because it'll get me in with him or her. And so next time when they have a good deal, I, I'm in. And so that, that's, a, that's the thing that happens, that, that these investors will take on the, the, you know, the dog shit IPOs because it gets them in, in on good terms with the underwriters so that the next time when it, when it is a good deal, they get some of that action. That's exactly true. And I've started getting some uh, kind of correspondence going with a few underwriters here and people who have, uh, you know, uh, desks with the trading desks with the underwriters. And it's opening up a whole new world of understanding for me in terms of what you just said, for example, is, yeah, they straight up and and they can't, you know, there is a line that they can't cross and, you know, that they don't even know, but, um, you know, they, they, they can tell you things like how oversubscribed an IPO is. They can tell you things like, hey, I don't think this one's going to do very well, uh, but we got another one coming up. And if you want in on, you know, the good one, you're going to have to buy the crap one. Uh, yeah, but that kind exactly. of goes across the board. And these, you know, they, they have their reputation to manage for sure. Um, but the their clients are the companies going live and the, you know, they do have, they're sort of, I mean, they are brokers. That is the point. They are trying to get companies to come in and buy uh, you know, and for the big companies, you know, when it's Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, they want companies, they want institutional investors to come in and buy hundreds mm-hmm. of millions of dollars worth of shares. And in order to do that, they have to get, they have to, you know, they want to sell those shares at a price that allows the buyers, the IPO buyers to sell them at, a, you know, and make a profit. Uh, and people say, oh, you know, it's so unfair. Uh, I can't buy the IPOs and the big money gets to buy the IPOs. And then it's so unfair to the companies because then the price gets jacked up when they buy it. It's like, well, the price gets jacked up when they, you know, on the IPA, IPO debut and in a strong market, it can get run up from there. But you look at like what Rivian's done and Rivian is now well below that IPO price. And uh, it, I think debuted it, I think sold the, the IPO for like 78. It debuted at 106, if I remember, uh, ran up to like, 170 over the next few days and now where is it 50 60 so you know the ipo when you're buying that volume of shares it's not an unfair thing there's an entire system behind it that has been maintained over decades of relationships of institutional buyers buying and when i look you know now you look at the and all this is really helpful to understand when you look at you know the ipos that come out in a really cold market i mean nobody is trying you know if the market doesn't want growth and uh, you know tech, that those are the companies that want to go public, or at the very least, growth. I mean, you're talking about young companies raising That's money it. to fund growth. That is what an IPO traditionally is, and that is what the market is for. The market is here to raise money for companies. Uh, it is not to make us money as traders. That's it, it is to it is to allow That's companies it. to raise money. That's it. And that is why the IPO is a fundamental piece of the market that I think even when you're not trading them, when you're not day trading, I'm not in a position. Yeah. Someone mentioned, uh, hope I came back from that CDU IPO. Now I got stung pretty hard on that. I've not recovered from it. I have mentally, you know, learned from it, bounced back and I'm back in my, uh, you know, back at, 
back at my desk, not doing a great job other than kind of reconsidering my strategies on some things and learning, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I, I played what 25 shares just for fun on uh, to lose 500 bucks for no reason on that, uh, on that one I showed you earlier, but that's not big money. And that for me anyway, it is, I shouldn't lose it. And I shouldn't even take just token shares to show people how to get into a trade, maybe with one share. Um, but yeah, you want to, you, you want to learn from you, you, back to this idea. You want to learn lessons from your mistakes, uh, just like you want to learn lessons from the things you did well on. Uh, so CDU is not a great one. Uh, and it showed me why I did not try to take some kind of big position on what I knew was a stealth IPO with uh, TKLF. Uh, another question, why short when you can buy puts? I totally agree. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, some yeah, people just shorting don't do is it. riskier. Okay, it I'm not, is. I'm not, I'm not in a good position to give anybody advice on options other than, uh, yeah, with when you buy a put option, you have bought an option. The most you can do is lose the money on the option that you spent on it. It can expire worthless when you short a stock. You can be on the hook for more than that, as I understand it. So, all right. Anyway, so let's get to the IPOs. Yeah, this week. Yeah. Not so, much. So my guess is that two of these three has have already been pulled three weeks in, in a row now, or something. So uh, I don't know why this would be the week, or the, where they're like, yeah, no, this is the week to go, unless we get some kind of, uh, you know, unless there's some statement on Wednesday from the Fed that just completely reverses the market. I think we're going to see. No IPOs this week, and if they do, FGI is the low float kind of. Um, I don't think it's a stealth IPO. It does have ties to China. Um, we can talk about financials, but it actually does have decent financials. They're selling this company sells sinks and bath, you know, kitchen and bath products. They source them from China. They sell them at Home Depot and Lowe's. Uh, their numbers aren't bad at all. Uh, but that's not why you play these low float IPOs. You play these low float IPOs because they have very low, you know, very low float. And if everybody decides that's the trade for the day, uh, they run. And if they debut too high, you see something like CDU. Uh, you don't want to touch those. These will, this will IPO. I think the price range is six to eight dollars. If they price it at seven, uh, and you see a debut at eighteen. Uh, I don't think you can really touch that unless you really think it's a stealth IPO. That's actually where you would, would take a play on it. But if it debuts, crashes a little bit out, you know, as the allocation recipients dump their shares, you can watch this for, uh, you know, the trading groups love to jump in on these, uh, the pump and dump schemers, whatever you want to call them on Twitter. Uh, they jump in on these when they come down. We saw this with Vine. Vine had a really bad debut. It debuted at like eight bucks, tanked, and then... You know, a couple of weeks later, they hit a trading groups had accumulated shares and they pumped it back up to like nine dollars. There's some other alternative theories about this as well. Um, but these these are actually very interesting to watch right now. I think that if you're looking for a low float stock with a catalyst built in, I think day traders are pretty hungry for something to, you know, they're either hiding under their beds turned off their accounts entirely, or they're looking for something like this to play. So I think a lot of people have been talking about this one. It's an interesting to watch, one to watch. Uh, sorry, it's not January 13th. That was the original one. It's actually the 25th. And uh, okay. yeah, I'll be watching this one to see what it does. Okay. 25, uh, Credo, 25th. Sorry. Yeah. Credo Technology. This is the only... 
this would only be really the second mainstream IPO. I think it may have already been kind of pulled off of. It's not on my WeChat uh, IPO calendar. It is still on the NASDAQ calendar. This is a very strong company with institutional interest. It's a semiconductor manufacturer. manufacturer. They focus on data processing chips that accelerate and optimize hardwired data transfer. Uh, in their S1, they really are talking about how the volume of data uh, that people are, that companies are collecting is growing exponentially and the need for solutions that optimize the speed of transfer are in high demand. And that's what they really specialize on. Uh, they're not the only ones in the, in the, you know, in this market, there are a lot of uh, competitors, but everything chip related had been hot for a while. Uh, people are talking about how chips in this uh, earnings report cycle they're expecting good numbers from the chip manufacturers since they uh, their products are in super high demand right now. And they think there's going to be a premium on, premium on them and looking for uh, earnings beats. Uh, I kind of feel like they might want to, honestly, if the market doesn't turn around, they're not going to do this IPO, I would think. Uh, they do have strong revenue and growth numbers. They're up 45% in the last six months. Ending October, gross profits up 25% in the last six months, ending October 31st. Uh, they do have negative cash flow, negative net income, and negative operating profit. Uh, they're moving towards like profitability and positive cash flow and net income. So it just feels like to me in this market, people aren't super excited about anything that's not like we saw with uh, TPG Group. They're revenue and profit numbers were much higher than these numbers and their cash flow positive with net income positive and operating profit. So uh, it feels to me like other than the institutional interest is there, uh, they do seem to want to, uh, I guess BlackRock is already committed to putting in like what? 120 That's... million or something. But uh, the other thing that concerns me here is four customers account for 53% or 73% of their business. Oh, no. Pass. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but, 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 but we've seen that with the chips, like companies are trying to corner, you know, to lock in their agreements. You saw Ford made that. I forget who it was. You know, we have companies. Chip chip demand is, a, is one of the big problems in the yeah. supply chain constraints that we've been seeing recently. Right. So. I don't know. I, I don't have money to you know, to buy IPO debuts right now. Everything's kind of locked up and I'm dancing around, you know, staying out of margin calls. So uh, I won't be playing any of these until I see the market kind of warm up a little bit. I can't expect huge premiums. But what I would look for is if they do IPO this and you like this company long term, you really might get a very fair price compared to what you would have gotten on an IPO six months ago or a year ago when everything was debuting at such a premium. That, Le uh, less frothy is probably the way to put that, but I, yeah. Yeah. Less um, frothy and just, a, they're not, they're not able to jack up, you know, they're, they're pricing. And we saw it with a TPG was right. they priced right in the middle in mid range. They didn't go get greedy. They didn't price even at the high end of the range and they left room on the table and it's kind of held its value. So uh, if you're looking right. for long-term buys, People say, no, buy the IPO. Well, these you probably have a better chance of getting good value in in the long run. Uh, the last one we talked about this last week, Samsara Vision. It's implantable miniature microscopes uh, for vision loss. It's really still too early. 
I don't find biotech IPOs to do great right now in this market. I can't imagine something like this going, you know, crazy on the debut. It would be an interesting, uh, you know, one of the things that we talk about is the lockup, uh, sorry, the quiet period expiration. And that is that we've seen a lot of low float, especially in the biotech uh, space, debut, drop. Once they hit this kind of like sub $2.50 level, you know, about a month, it's actually 40 days after the IPO, the quiet period, uh, lock, you know, quiet period lockup expires. So they can do press releases. The underwriters can do, uh, can put obscene price targets on them. And we often see a bump, sometimes huge rips. Uh, so one strategy that I've been looking at and have done kind of made some pretty good tr- trades on in the past is just to watch these and see if it does drop, if it starts to bottom out kind of just above two, take a position going into the quiet period. And then, you know, one headline on a low float can send these things flying. So again, right. it's, a, it, it, it's a tough market for IPOs. This is sort of the, um, you know, the time where you pay your dues, I believe, in just yeah. studying, doing the research. But, you know, you, you're in this for the research. You're in this for the long term. Uh, you're learning about companies the day they're born. Uh, on the stock market and you're looking for not necessarily the IPO debut as a trading opportunity when the market looks like this, but you are looking for um, just, I look back on a lot of the the stocks that we've traded in the last year and I can say, Oh yeah, that is way down. Cause you remember them the, for, for, since the very beginning, especially uh, you're coming into as a new trader, you don't, how are you going to learn 200 or whatever, 2000 stocks at once? Well, you can start with IPOs and over time you're going to have, you know, a very in-depth understanding of what the companies that you saw debut, how they've performed since they started trading. You know, and this is to me just a way to stay on top of the new products on the stock market. Matt Hammond, IPOWarriors.com. Join us every Monday to talk IPOs. Matt, sign up for the newsletter, IPOWarriors.com. Yeah. Stay stay safe in all seriousness. (laughs) Forget the market. Stay safe for real, okay? Cool. Thanks, Spencer. All right. Um, Hey, uh, let's do a quick survey. One in the chat, if we should end the show right now and all go home. Because I thought, Aaron, that the snow was going was gonna to subside. They said one to three inches. I thought that ain't no thing. It is really coming down out there. It is. Well, if you guys don't see me on the show going forward, I just did some research. Oh, no. Um, I am still eligible to be drafted for another year. <laughs> Um, Spencer, lucky enough, passed the cutoff. They don't Wait, want him anymore. Wait, what's Too the cutoff? Old. 25. 25. So it's like car insurance. Yeah. You're on your parents' car. If you're still on your parents' car insurance, you're still eligible for the draft. Is that what you're saying? Did you just look that up with Luke? Yeah. No, that- no. That's not my Luke came over here to tell me about uh, some dips he was buying. He Luke bought Netflix for anyone out there keeping track of uh, Luke's portfolio. I forget whose job that is to be keeping track of Luke's Look at this portfolio. view. Look at this. Thank you, Rohan. It's really coming down out there. Um, if you guys recall, yeah, I I recall. I gave a stock last week that I I was hesitant to uh, say I, I was going bullish, but I a- officially added it to my oh, AB watch it, it, list. It's not a super popular ticker. I don't remember the ticker. I know we talked about it twice, but INST. Thank you, INST. They run Canvas. Uh, Spencer, can I get that pulled up right now? I'm because I, I think something's very interesting about INST on I'm a day like it. today. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. INST. Do you know what I think is interesting about INST on a day like today? Uh, it's yeah, it's up. It's green. <laughs> 
By the way, whoever I think it was Shelley noticed that our the the color of our desk is is not changing. Yeah, it's red. I think that's I think that's a coincidence. Because it ain't. So I'm taking that INST, I'm taking that as my sign, as my conviction, saying oh, on a day man. like today, it's green. It's been on my watch list. It's been my stock to watch. Um, Can you remind us what this company does? Yeah, they run Canvas, the online uh, course management system right. okay. for, for educators. So universities are their big uh, client. I think universities will be in no position right now to kind of cancel their, their subscriptions to Canvas. Uh, my university switched over from Blackboard to Canvas while I was there. This was well before COVID-19 was even a, a thing. Um, so that makes me, I mean, that gives me the uh, peace of mind as an investor saying, hey, look, universities, because think about it, it's a big, it, it takes a lot of work to switch over your entire um, course management system, sure. like from Blackboard to Canvas, and you have to be sold on it to want to do that, that it's a better platform it, it makes more sense it's more economic whatever it is um but big universities are willing to do that um and i think once they're once they're with canvas they're gonna be they're not gonna want to switch again right so wait you want to hear some stats about higher education sure okay uh according to data from the national student clearinghouse research center this data is from uh last quarter uh, total undergraduate enrollment in the U.S. dropped 3.1% from Q4 of last year to Q4 the year prior. Um, that mar- that basically means if you go out to uh, compare last quarter to pre-COVID, there are 6.6% fewer college students, undergrads, in the U.S. than than there were before COVID. If you're wondering, 6.6%, what does that come out to? It's about 1.2 million students. There are 1.2 million fewer undergraduates in the U.S. today, or I guess as of the end of uh, the year, than there were before the pandemic. Uh, Do you want to hear my my caveat to that? Yes, I'm all for caveats. I would would bet my money, if I were a betting man, which I am, that despite the decrease in overall undergrad students in the United States, there's an increase in college students taking courses online. Wouldn't that be factored into the enrollment figure? <laughs> right? Well, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, no. You're saying that. Okay, wait. You're saying that everyone's taking online classes. I'm saying take the total amount of students that were taking. Wait, is it year over year? What? It, what, what were yeah, we're talking. Well, we're talking so Pre- from, from pre-COVID from, numbers. From yeah, from February 19 to December of 2021, 1.2 million fewer students. Right, but, but okay. my point is that December, February 19 to 2021, more people do are taking online. classes online. Oh, sure, of course they are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but so it's a greater piece of a shrinking of a smaller pot. But it's still, yeah. Net, net. I I don't think the trend that less people are going to college is going to be there. Stay I, for we a while. don't know. We don't know. Maybe. I I think I honestly think more students should consider going like for to straight the from trades. high school. Yeah. Yes. I mean, dude, if you're if you're like oh. if, if you go straight from high school to become an electrician or something at 2021 you're making like 80 90k a year no student debt you can put 30k of that a year towards your retirement savings uh, honestly if i could do it again i think i would my portfolio would look a lot bigger than if, it is if i could do it again and i'm 30 years old if i can do it again i would strongly consider 
like going to granted I'm a I'm not a handy person. I don't know if that's obvious by looking at me, but I'm not a very handy person in general. Uh I would but still I would consider going to like electrician school or plumbers make bank. Um carpenters. Carpenters, yeah. I, I part of me always wish I had done that because the job security is there. And uh, they yeah, like if you want to go to college right now and be, get a marketing degree, and along with two other million people that have marketing, I mean, no, come on. Yeah, and also like I'm very fortunate to the where I was able to pay off the last of my student loan debt uh, with the uh, with the stimulus money that we got, but it took me seven years. Wait, you only, you only had fourteen hundred dollars left of your student loan debt? No, I had a little more. Okay, but I just I just said. Screw it. I'm going to just get it all in one shot. All right. Look at this. So but the point was it took me seven years or eight, no, eight years. It took me through my 20s to get out from under that student loan debt. And, I, and, I, and I'm lucky. I consider myself very lucky in that regard in that it only took me eight years. So where, where do you stand in terms uh, of your thoughts on, like, looking at institutional ownership of a stock? Um, a lagging indicator i would much rather look to see what the insiders are doing like what the c-suite is doing more than like what how many hedge funds i'm not sure where you're getting at with this but i don't know it's it's interesting it's interesting it's not super telling i i, I think wait real quick before you continue with your point did you send the links to jake yeah okay cool just checking so my thought there's this guy, Toma Bravo. That's not a guy, but okay. Okay, but let's imagine it was. <laughs> okay. Let's imagine Toma Bravo's a, a guy. He owns over two and a half billion worth of instructure. I'm looking at Whale Wisdom right now. Um, he, I, I think they owned the company and then brought it public. Yep. But I don't think they've sold any yet. And to me, that's like like... Uh, such a bullish sign, which I guess we won't know if they sold any until the next quarter, correct? We're, we're going to know in uh, three weeks. But look how many... Okay, look, they have 87% of this company. That's a lot. Yeah. That that To me, that's more of a risk than anything else because if they start unloading, then... That's fair, but... I think I think because they own so much, if there was like a big block sell and in structure, they would know it's... It's Mr. Toma, right? Mr. Toma. That, 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 that's, I think that's how we go. That's, that's how he's addressed, Mr. Toma. That's what I'm that, saying. That might be his name. Fear King, market is bouncing a little bit, little bit. Bitcoin is having itself a nice, nice few minutes. We'll give Bitcoin that. Um, you know, it's having a nice half hour here. Overall market, if you go to the QQQs, yeah, we're off the lows of the day. But that's not saying much um yeah i don't know um i wanted to uh mention this article real fast before uh jake wujasic joins us uh and i tweeted the link to this article over the weekend i'll i'll, I'll put it in the chat uh i was it came, i was reading it like saturday morning uh just a, a fantastic fantastic read about short sellers short sellers in this market um it was kind of a profile Kind of a trend piece, and I'm going to bring the link up on the screen as soon as I can find it. Um, 
Not sure why it's not showing. I up. also there was something I wanted to either like talk about or do yeah. on the show today that was kind of like off color. Like I remember thinking in my head like, oh, this would be funny, and I'll get Spencer's reaction live. And now I can't think of of what it was. Anyway, it was a, um, a New York Magazine uh, profile of uh, Nathan Anderson, who uh, some of you uh, may know as Hindenburg Research, the guy who took down uh, Nikola, among others. Um, not always right. No one's always right, but he's he's had some good picks lately. It was a really good read. It's a really good read on 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 the trend of short selling. It is not a uh, a area of the market that has been uh, fruitful for the past decade. We've been in a bull market basically uh, for the last ten years, or I guess not so much these days, but you know the prior decade. Um, it's a really really hard thing to do, and. Um, this is a great a great read. So I highly, highly recommend checking this out if you have, you know, 10, 15 minutes to spare. I put the link in the chat. Check it out for real. Great read. Um, all about just what goes into these reports. You know, how how does it work? The inner working the the, the social dynamics of a short seller. It was a great read. Check it out. Um Good afternoon, Christian. How are we doing? It's 102, and on 1 o'clock on Mondays, we get Jake Wujastic from Trendspider to come on and uh, show his charts to us and talk us off the ledge or not talk, talk us onto the ledge in some cases. I don't know. Let's bring Jake on the show right now. Jake, what's up, man? What's up? How are we doing? Doing well. I don't. I don't know if I'm going to talk anyone on or off a ledge, but I'll, uh, you know, show what I'm seeing and what's kind of happened over the last week or two. Uh, yeah. And yeah, just pretty. I mean, this is this is definitely the biggest pullback we've had since uh, the COVID low. So that was something yeah. I was looking at today. So this is this is definitely, you know, I think something that was probably much needed, and I think. You know, a lot of people, including myself, thought the markets were probably going to have a pretty strong January with January effect, tax loss selling uh, kind of ending, and mm -hmm. you just didn't have it. And that's generally when you have the biggest moves is when no one is expecting it. And especially these types of moves where, I mean, if you look at the daily chart, you've just gone straight down. And, you know, I, I think it's awesome if people have made some good money on the put side of things. But, you know, I think it's also you know, pretty unprecedented. Uh, at least there hasn't been many times where we just go straight down like this over, you know, the last, uh, since COVID, it pretty much was COVID when that type of move happened. So I think it's taken a lot of people off, off guard. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have uh, gotten hit pretty hard. You've got a lot of people still holding on to that long-term view on growth stocks and that type of thing. And, yeah, at this point, they've almost uh, completely erased the move that happened after COVID. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people just trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, I, I think you're going to see a lot of people once again try to buy the dip in calls, uh, which is going to destroy people because the VIX, you know, hit 38 today. So just a reminder, calls – if you're trying to buy the dip in the market and you're buying calls right now, just remember you're you're going to be swimming upstream. You've got the volatility index is really high. That's jacking up all the premiums. I mean, some of these premiums are down. Uh, some of these premiums were up today, even though some of these spot prices were down three to four percent because of 
the VIX being up so much. So even though if we got a big spike in the next day or two and the VIX collapses, that's going to destroy the contract. So just a reminder, you know, for those that that are trying to buy contracts, especially shorter term contracts, they're going to get yeah. destroyed if we do get a bounce here. And who knows? I don't think anyone knows for sure or not. Uh, you've had a lot of people kind of talk about how they knew this drop was coming and, you know, uh, this waterfall was just so, so obvious. But um, that's something I did want to remind people who are maybe thinking about trying to buy the dip through options contracts. Just remember the volatility index is really high right now. And that affects the implied volatility on all these contracts across the market. Great point. So let's can you share your charts with us, Jake? And then we'll start with the overall market, and then we'll go to some individual names from there. Um, but great point on the premiums. They can jack them in your face. And even if you're right, even if you're right, you, you can still lose. Yeah, I mean, just in the last 35 minutes or so, um, the VIX – wait, is VXX leveraged? No, I don't think it is. It's just a. It's I'll a, be honest. I don't. I don't know. No, I don't think it is. And, and so uh, VXX is down more than five percent just over the last thirty-five minutes. Because if you look at the market just over the past thirty minutes, things don't look bad. But if you if you zoom out a little bit, look over the past couple of weeks, not so great. But the last thirty minutes, good. <laughs> yeah, VXX is kind of just a. Uh... A proxy for the VIX. Uh, if you're looking at like VIX as a function of, I want to see if you know the volatility index is high. I would just look at the VIX uh, rather than VXX because you can have some big time decay in those and your your T VIXs yeah. and all that. But um, but yeah, so you know on the chart you you did have a pretty pretty tight ascending uh, wedge over the last month and a half, five weeks or so. Uh, so that, you know, that was something to look at that we we're getting a little tight. But a lot of the time when we've had these, you've actually had kind of a melt up through the upside and then you crash. I, uh, I've seen that quite a few times. So the fact that we just pretty much went straight down for the last four weeks uh, is, is definitely, uh, I think, a little uh, more than what people were expecting, if, even if we did get a pullback. And I, do, I still do think Max Payne would be a move to the upside. So like just to massive move uh you know the spy was down almost four percent today that's you don't have those days very often so it was it capitulation was this whole thing just a, a deleveraging event meaning there's too much margin um you know who knows but we did have a big breakdown so for me you know this this chart at least in the short term is pretty broken uh for this this move who knows? Maybe we just get an absolute face rip to the upside to retest this previous support, which would act as resistance. But uh, I think you would really need the Fed to, uh, you know, change their stance a little bit uh, with with rates. You d it doesn't help that a lot of these guys at these banks are saying, oh, yeah, you know, five to seven rate hikes probably wouldn't be shot. I, I I yeah, it's like, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, if we want to crash the economy, then sure, you know, that that would work. But, um, but yeah, we'll see. You got you got a nice little you know a nice little bounce going right now. I mean, if you look at the sixty-five minute chart, you finally have a spike here. Um, so you know this, you know, we may get a relief bounce here. It's you generally don't have gap downs on the weekly chart like this. So if we turn on the weekly chart and you go back, you generally don't have a ton of gap downs. Uh, on like from week to week so this is this is definitely pretty big so it wouldn't shock me to see you know a pretty green candle here i think a lot of 
this stuff has been priced in. It still reminds me a ton of 2015 going into 2016 when everything pretty much bottomed out uh, because a lot of that, those Fed hikes that Yellen was talking about were essentially priced in by that point. So, you know, if you look back in history around this time uh, of the year is when you did have a pretty hard bottom um, on the S&P 500 in 2016, which was which was definitely important bottom for the market. So we'll see what happens. But so far, you are getting a pretty decent bounce, uh, you know, so we're still down two and a half percent, though, which, you know, for if you were watching the markets uh, over the last several months, two and a half percent would have been just crazy. And now it's like, oh, that's, you know, that's not too bad. We we're almost down four percent like 30 minutes ago. So, um, you know, I, I, I really think that if you're going to look at the markets right now, it needs to be in a function of gaps. Right. So where where are there gaps still? And what's pretty interesting to me is, at least on the S and P 500, you've got this uh, this gap right here from October, pretty much when we bottomed in October, and then you actually still have a little bit of that gap that we gapped down through today. So you've got this this pocket of just like no price action here. So that may be a magnet short term. Um, if we do continue down, which you know at this point. Uh, yeah, all options are on the table. If we did continue down, you do have another gap down here uh, around 403 on the S&P 500. So, you know, is this a type of move that's just getting more long sucked in? Or, you know, is, are we finally potentially putting in a bottom and we get a little bit of a turnaround Tuesday tomorrow? Uh, we'll see. But like I said, I, I still do think Max Payne would be just a ridiculous move to the upside over the next couple of days. But um, you know, we'll we'll kind of see how that plays out. The S and P five hundred's got the gaps below. IWM's got like so many gaps below since the COVID lows. It's kind of crazy. So these are all the gaps on IWM. Um, so you know, it's it's uh, it's kind of crazy to see how many gaps you do still have below if these started to fill. But all in all. You know, the, the COVID low volume weighted average price is right around 188. So if we if we did continue down, I think that would be a pretty big area to hold on the small caps. And then uh, on the queues, you know, you, you are kind of holding still right at this t- October 2020 low. So uh, this is something I pointed out last week where you've got this v- you've got this volume weighted average price. This thicker line is the volume weighted average price since October, 2020, that low, uh, right before elections. And what I did here was I added an offset. So, so this is an, this next line right here is not a volume weighted average price that I'm pointing at with the green arrow. That is an offset. And the reason why I added this offset was because this was the last time when we broke down in March of 2021 through this October, 2020 low VWAP, we did bounce about, uh, I think that's a 3% offset. Yeah, a 3% offset. So we did bounce around 3% below this uh, this volume weight average price. So that's how I come up with this offset for this. So I just added a, a 3% VWAP essentially below it. And then you can see here that we actually bounced pretty well uh, around that area. I think you've had a lot of margin calls. You've had a lot of just panicking, uh, especially today. 
where you're not going to respect any of these levels perfectly, but they're, they're a nice roadmap and a guide for where we, we have bounced in the past. And so far, we're, we're bouncing kind of right where you would have expected if you were using these offsets. So you do have a gap below still uh, around 322, something to consider. But, you know, I think if we were to go lower, you need a pretty big bounce for uh, shorts to have liquidity to short into. But, um, yeah, pretty, pretty rough out there. I think some people are learning some valuable lessons who just entered the market over the last you know two years or so. I hope so. And part part of me is like, um, I wouldn't say I'm happy because uh, I'm not happy, but it's very hard to get people to understand that the party ends while the party is raging, right? Yeah. So yep. the party is not raging right now. So I hope now everyone can can understand if they didn't before that parties end, stocks go down. You, your your stock is not special because you own it. That like, I, I I hope everyone knows that, right? Your stock is not special. Stocks go down. That's what they do. They go down. Then they go up. But they go down too. Yep. That's the way it goes. Um, we got Bitcoin finally showing, you know, for, for me over the weekend, something I had mentioned was if, if we are going to, you know, get a bottom, I think you're probably going to see Bitcoin kind of, uh, kind of be that, be that indicator of a bottom because Bitcoin is definitely the best gauge of liquidity in the market. Once, once Bitcoin kind of capitulated here, if we can close as a green candle on the daily today, I, I do think you'll probably get a pretty big bounce which I think will roll over into the markets just because they're so correlated. Um, so Bitcoin is definitely something to keep an eye on. If, if Bitcoin has a really strong uh, move overnight, especially, you know, I think that would probably fare pretty well for stocks tomorrow um, because shorting works the same way as going long. You have to take profits. And if you take profits as a short, you're buying the asset or the whatever you're trading back. Uh because you're short on it. So these these bounces are generally caused by shorts covering rather than just a bunch of buyers coming in uh, who are actually on the long side. These are just these bounces, uh, especially in downtrends like this, come from shorts covering, buying the position back because that's how they close the position. And so, you know, I, I do think if we can see a pretty decent candle today on the daily for Bitcoin, we could have a, a relief bounce or at least just a short covering bounce into the Fed uh, on Wednesday. So, all right, let's do this. If you have any tickers for Jake, he's going to hang out with us for 10 to 15 more minutes. Drop your tickers in the chat and Jake will give you his honest to God thoughts of, uh, of whatever it is. So um, we'll do that. See what's, what's I would curious. like... I would like your thoughts, Jake. Uh, I want to throw a, a tough one your way, but can you can you look at like either Peloton or Netflix? Peloton, what is old Peloton? Hey, don't Peloton? laugh. Look at look at Peloton today. Don't yeah, laugh. You know, I, and I think that's you know a great point uh, with the shorts, right? This thing has gotten annihilated, and this is probably kind of shorts covering their positions. And this is like if you bought calls on this big dip here. Uh, on Thursday, you're you're happy because not only is the stock up, but the volatility index is up like crazy. So you're you're getting you're getting a move from from this being up over the last two days, but then you're also getting the implied volatility just absolutely jacked up from uh, from this this tank in in stocks. And uh, so 
this is interesting that it'd be interesting to see how these calls are doing today with the volatility already moving premiums higher, but then you also have this up 4.5%. So a, a dip by uh, on that huge move down on on the 20th would have been uh, probably yielding decent today uh, in the last couple of days. Yeah, this one, I mean, this thing has almost erased all of the, let's see. Yeah, so we didn't erase the COVID low yet, but I mean, this thing literally since COVID, since we bottomed is up, uh, still up 60%, which is crazy. Uh, at the top, we were up 800% from the COVID low. So, you know, it's uh, it's Monday, so you can't really look too much into the the weekly candle, but you have had just pretty much a, a move straight down since mid-October. So you moved from around 98, 99, all the way to a low of 23 in about three and a half, four months. So, so yeah, this, this is one that, you know, who knows, maybe gets a relief bounce, but sorry, two and a half, three months or so. So yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I, I, I don't know if I would try to buy this, this dip. I think last time we talked, what, two weeks ago, we were looking at like UPST that had a bounce. Um, yeah, that was, when was that? Like here or maybe here we were, someone asked asked about that one and I almost, yeah, I mean, you've got a decent candle forming here. I mean, if you have a wick like this form today, you may have finally seen some capitulation, but, uh, you know, if you go back and you look at some of these other wicks, you've had wicks like this in the past. So, you know, if you're just looking at straight up trend, this is definitely a downtrend and, uh, your moving averages will tell you that depending on what type of trend you want to look at, maybe the longer term trend, you know, throw on the 50 or the 100 or the 200. The problem is with UPST, there's not a lot of price data here. So you, some of those moving averages you may not even have yet for UPST since there just isn't enough candles to calculate some of those longer term moving averages. So, you know, uh, even if you use the 20, uh, the 20 period moving average, just the SMA, this thing's still moving down pretty solid. So once this maybe starts to flatten out a little bit, maybe that's when uh, you, this looks decent. But for now, I mean, what did this hit today? 75. Jeez. The, the thing that scares me a little bit with UPST, and I don't have a position, but scares me, you know, for anyone in here that's thinking this is a bottom you do have a gap down here from March of 2021 around 62. So I would never want to buy a dip, even if I just bought the common stock for a bounce here, because, you know, this, this thing is in gap territory and, you know, the chances of filling the gap, I think are relatively high if this market continues. But like I said, I think if it does continue down, you're going to need a pretty decent bounce just to give some shorts liquidity to short back into. So yeah, this one's, this one's pretty tough. Uh, All right, Jake, Jake, let's do a few from the chat. Let's look at S Sentinel one recent IPO um, cybersecurity. I always forget it exists for some reason. Um, yeah. What did it break? It broke below your previous, uh, your pretty much second day after the IPO. Same. I think. I think the thing is with this type of market, your any chart you go to, you're probably going to see a pretty similar daily candle. You know, you've got this capitulation that looks like it may have finally happened. So all of these are, you know, all of these are pretty strong dojis. Uh, and who knows? It's we still got two and a half hours left in the market. But 
you know, if we if we have a pretty strong candle, this may be a short term bottom. Uh, and and like I said, you're probably going to see this type of candle all over, um, especially with when the markets this connected. Right, the last few days have definitely been. You go on your watch list through 100 stocks, every single one is red, almost probably 95% or more are red. So, what the reason I brought that up is because you're probably the market's moving really strongly together. So, no matter what chart we look at, I would be willing to guess most of them probably look like this, which is showing maybe a potential bottom, uh, at least short term bottom in the market. So, shorts can come in and take profit and cover their positions. But yeah, what, the what IPO, about, IPO low is not great. Yeah, here. Okay, what about Cleveland Cliffs? That may that chart may look different. Cleveland that chart says, may look different. Oh my god! Well, it does look different, but that doesn't mean good. Holy hell! <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and and this is something that when you have broad market sell offs like this, nothing's really safe. You know, people were talking about oh, financials and oil, blah blah blah. Two because they ago. were safe for two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Two weeks ago, they were great. They were at a high and now everything's gotten rocked. So when you've got this big of a broad market move, nothing's really safe. I mean, puts definitely pay, but going long to try to, you know, see what the market's rotating into. The market isn't rotating into anything right now. Most of the, a lot of the probably big cash coming out could be just going to the brokers for margin calls. You know, I saw somebody the other day mentioned, you know, where's this cash going? Well, if somebody gets a margin call, it's going to the broker to maintain their their margin, uh, their maintenance margin level. So uh, th- this is this is a, a great example of that. I think a lot of people were probably thinking some of these names, your XOMs, your CLFs, your your U.S. Steels may may do well while tech is crashing, and then everything just kind of fell off a, a ledge. Same thing though. I mean, it's not the exact candle, but you do have kind of this. Uh, this doji type candle forming here. Um, you know, they're not going to be exact based on the open, but a lot of, I think you're going to see a lot of these types of candles going into tomorrow. Um, but I think first you need today to close to see, because with this volatility, we may have this candle when we're on this right now, but in an hour, this thing may be at the low of the day or the high of the day. There's just so much volatility. It's, I mean, what, what's the range today on this? It, the range is 15 all the way up to uh, 16. Let's see, bottom is 1582. So yeah, not actually not that big of a range, but still, you know, a pretty pretty big range on the day. You can have a lot of movement by the time we actually close today. So decent looking candle for now, uh, especially given what the last four look like. But you know, this candle also uh, showed up here back on June January 11th before we just waterfalled. So. I, I think there's definitely reasons to still be cautious and just remember with the calls and all that, if you do try to buy the dip in calls, not, and especially if you're swinging those calls, especially shorter term, you may, you may still get destroyed even if the market does rip, because if the market really rips in the next couple of days, the volatility index is probably going to have a couple like 10 plus percent down days and that really affects the pricing of these premiums. Uh, if you are on the right side, you know, even if you are on the right side, the 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 options premiums may just completely implode because of that implied volatility crush. So, but yeah, uh, not, this, not a great this, chart. This either. is a good comment here, a- Andy. Andy wants us to look at uh, Bitcoin versus the spy. 
Bitcoin has a common handle on the daily, while SPY does not. Mr. Coinbase. Uh, so I don't have like, I can't ratio it, but I can uh, show both here. So what is this? Price compare. Oh, I don't think I can compare SPY to Bitcoin. Yeah, I'll check it out. Check, across check different out. asset prices. But yeah, so here's Bitcoin. Um, and then if you look yeah, at wait, SPY, wait, wait, what if what if I did it on my end and you could just like, yeah, uh, you can do that. Uh, hold on, come on, you piece of let's go computer, work for me, work for me. There you go. Okay, let's we... get my chart up on the screen, and then we can. I'll pull up a daily. Don't worry, don't freak out. I know I don't have a daily up there yet. I know, I know it's an intraday. Chill, chill, chill. All right. Daily. Spy BTC. Let me just, I'll zoom out more for you. How about that? I'll zoom. That's good. Um, I don't know, Jake. Do you see anything here? Um, I mean, I mean, over the last few days, you've definitely had a correlation with, uh, yeah, I think I think literally the last six days or so has really been the move. You know, this this move down on January thirteenth was nothing, and so I think Bitcoin and Spire are heavily correlated in the last five days because this is when you're getting liquidations. This is when you're getting margin calls. Where you know before up here you you weren't having that type of forced selling yet. So I think once that forced selling started coming in. Uh, that's when SPY and Bitcoin really started to correlate over the last five or six days. Because as I mentioned, Bitcoin's just a great way to look at liquidity in the market. If Bitcoin's getting rocked, then the market is is uh, you know probably starting to become a little uh, illiquid and it just shows pretty well on Bitcoin. So it doesn't shock me once we finally did waterfall that Bitcoin and, and SPY definitely correlated a lot more than when we've seen it um, over the last two months or so. Um, so yeah, the, for those that, you know, use statistics and terminology, the R squared, the correlation coefficient, meaning how closely related spy and the move of Bitcoin are definitely is, is pretty high over the last couple of days. But I think if you look back, maybe since November, uh, you, you have had a little bit of a disconnect until, uh, until recently. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I, at this point, you just have to look at gaps. I think that's your main thing. There's really no levels that are even holding. Um, I mean, if, if you want to look on the S&P 500 here from the July low, you know, we, we did bounce at the July low here, but, you know, you know horizontal levels and, and gaps are probably your main go to now. Even even volume weighted average prices are they're not being respected that well because of all the, all this forced selling, this panic, you know, I think, I think the panic really started today. Uh, because if you look at last week, we had an 8.5% or 8.75% move down pretty much since the top. And the VIX, uh, the VIX was lower than when we had this move in early December. Uh, and the VIX was at 35 on this move down. And it was only at 29 as of yesterday. So to me, that tells me that there wasn't a ton of, there was fear for sure. But I think today was definitely more of your panic day. Um, and that's why you see the VIX so high up. So if people are panicking, right. you know, sometimes that, that creates a bottom, but 
we'll we'll see how how the uh, afternoon closes. But the last few days we've had pretty big selling into the close, and we'll see if that's any different today. Uh, Jake Wajastic is the uh, one of the founders of Trend Spider. I would encourage you all to check out uh, that platform. Um, if only for the raindrops. There's a, there's a lot more than that, but the raindrops, uh, we didn't talk about them today, but those are like the coolest things ever. Thank you. Maybe not like ever, not like in the history of like mankind, but like they're very cool. So they, uh, um, they definitely, they definitely are great, uh, in specific times in the market, especially around support resistance. Uh, thing is we haven't really had too many, uh, support, support zones or resistance zones. We've pretty much just gone straight down. So, but, um, yeah, we'll, we'll touch on those maybe more next week uh, and we can, we can show some, some examples of maybe what's happened in the last week uh, from this week and we'll go from there. Thank you guys uh, for having me on. Use the code on the screen, BZ25, get you 25% off. Thanks a lot, Jake. Have a good rest of the week. Stay green if you can. Um, All right, Aaron. What up, what up? What up, what up? By the way, what's the deal with that? With this? Yeah. So I was off soda for a little bit. Yeah. And I relapsed. Ah. I've been drinking soda again. I guess I meant, like, you ventured outside to go to Pop Ellie's in this weather? Not really. This was before the show. I got soup. No, but you went outside. Soup season. But you went outside. Yeah. It's getting dicey out there. It's getting dicey out there. Yeah. I'm still frustrated because there was some joke, thing, meme, bit I wanted to play today. Shelly said it was a football related. She said context clues. Maybe it was football was related. Was it about sports betting? Dude, which? I, sorry, finish your thought. I have a thing before Chris comes. I up. was just gonna say which is probably a good call, but that didn't like jog any anything in my head. That like, oh yeah, football related. This is what I was gonna say. This is what I was gonna do. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to take a take a book out of our next guest. Our, our page. page. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, while you take the book out of that page, uh, our next guest's page. Um, I was messing around on the DraftKings app la- on the uh-huh. DraftKings sportsbook app last uh-huh. night, and like I, ch- I tend to ignore all in-app pop-ups ads. I just close it. I don't even doesn't even register. But I noticed that they have like the blackjack. Yeah, that's what always gets me. Which I've seen it before. And I've always just like been like, ah, blah, not, not, not tonight. For whatever reason, last night I was like, tonight, you know, you know what? Actually, I know why. It's because DraftKings is the only app that I've got where I've actually got like did not lose all my money. Okay. So I had like a balance of like twenty. It was like twenty three dollars. Okay. And in the span of five minutes, I twenty three to one to ninety. No way. Yeah. You so you had one dollar left. You bet that dollar on a hand. Won that hand. Yeah. Started leveraging up, so you got to ninety. At the moment, I'm at like seventy five or seventy right. something. Yeah, and and I was doing this on the couch. We're watching the end of the game, and I was like, I'm like, this is a lot of fun. And my fiance is like, stop this now. Yeah, like this is this is the path to the dark side, which I agree with. Uh, gambling is fun. I actually also played blackjack on my DraftKings app last night. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh. I uh, I had a parlay that was Rams money line and Chiefs money line, and- sixty to win like two fifty. Okay. The two fifty hit my account. I started playing blackjack. <laughs> I don't have anything left in my account it's, anymore. <laughs> it's not real money. It's when it's on the screen. It's not real money. It's like your Robinhood account. Right? I've but I've I've had. Oh. I, so I think it got me – the same thing happened to me in the options market. It got me like – I had like beginner's luck the first time and made like $1,500 playing blackjack off like $200 that I had in my DraftKings account. And since then I've thought like, oh, yeah, I can turn this 200 into 15 easy. I've done this before. Yeah. And I'll play 
and it, it doesn't it, work it, like that. It's, and that, it's and seriously dangerous. This is dangerous stuff. Well, that, people are always like, oh, how can you trust like the thing on here? And I'm like, all right, first of all, like I imagine that this gambling software has to get like vetted by someone for it to be approved, whatever. Second of all, it's not like if I go to the casino in person, I'm like a hundred for a hundred percent going to win. And online I'm losing. No, I'm losing both places. <laughs> yeah, enough everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and actually I've, I feel like I've had almost better luck on the online one, but um, yeah, my point was, I'm going to keep trying to think of whatever that bit I was going right. to do today, but I was saying, I'm going to take a page out of our next guest book and try not to hold on to it too much. Um, you know, just let it, let it go. And, and maybe this is my sign. I just need to start writing things down more. Maybe who is our next guest? I'm glad you asked. Our next guest is Chris Capri of Boom. the Benzinga Option School and Second Skies Trading. Let's go ahead and get Chris on. Mr. Capri, how we doing? Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Were you also playing Blackjack on your DraftKings app last night? No. Uh, okay. If I want to play Blackjack, I just go to the casino. So Yeah. Well, yes. the casino is right here, though. It's in your phone. He's smarter than yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. I, right, I, I like the advantages of uh, working with things that I can see, not working with things that I can't see, so to say. Uh, okay. I, don't, I don't. I don't totally trust the apps. I, I think there's probably a little bit of game theory in them, and they're probably yeah, they may have somebody regulating it, but they can't have somebody regulating it every single day, so they could always twiddle with it and then revert the code. And so, yeah, yeah I'd rather, I go to a real casino. So, AB, if you ever want to go to a real casino, you just let me know. I'm happy to. All right, money let's do it. Well, well, let's wait until my portfolio is a little bit more. Wait, she, that Shelly, says, Shelly says that she bets you count cards. You don't have to answer Ooh. that. Uh, only if it's three decks or less. If it's above three decks, I will not count cards. Excuse me. Yeah, that's yeah. how I am, Chris. When it just gets, it gets to be too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, Chris, why don't you go ahead and share your charts and, ch and we can uh, yes. figure out wh wh where your head's at right now. Yeah, okay. so this is an interesting time to have you on, Chris, because so last Friday we saw our biggest day in terms of volume on the queues um, in a long time, and it looks like we may surpass that volume today. And I'm, I'm curious kind of how this relates to the options market, if we're seeing that same uptick in, in option contracts being traded. Sure. All right. So before we get into that, I do want to kind of preface this. So this this brief description I'm going to share with you, this is the pre-market commentary that I share with the Benzing Option School members. I share this type of commentary Monday through Thursday where I analyze the flows before the market opens. I look at open interest, where positioning is, net changes, gamma structures, the whole thing. And I give this analysis. And this analysis will pretty much sum up my view of the markets right now. So today's pre-market commentary, there's no way to sugarcoat this. Markets are in ugly mode till the FOMC. We have that event coming up. Even though markets cleared out a lot of deep in the money calls last Friday, Tesla, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, and things like that, even though they cleared that off, the market is still in deep negative gamma mode. And if you've been on this show or you've heard me before, when the markets are in negative gamma mode, that means the markets are net short options. And when the market is net short options, you can expect volatility to be much more elastic. So what I said is expect wild volatility and swings. Real money buyers are not coming in, meaning institutionals are not coming in and buying these dips. They are not buying single tickers. They are not buying the index as a whole. They are not buying this. As of yesterday, as of this morning before the market happens, they weren't buying this dip. When they do, when they say, hey, we're going to start buying, not via options, but we're going to actually buy the underlying that provides liquidity and helps to support the market. It helps to stabilize it. We're not seeing that. Meanwhile, option traders are seeking downside protection. They have been since last week, but they are this week for sure. Put volumes are up immensely today. 
When traders buy puts, that means they make money if the market goes down. Traders buy puts, dealers are short puts. To hedge that short put exposure, which means that the market goes down, so dealers don't lose money, they short shares. So if traders are buying long puts on spies, dealers are short puts. That means dealers are actually helping the sell-off. They're actually pulling liquidity out of the market. It destabilizes the market. This is what we're saying. You know, destabilize the market, see market gamma lessons. That's lesson eight in the Benzing Options School. The hedging from Friday's OPEX for the deep in the money calls will create a lot of choppy, weird swings to open the week. Why? If traders were deep in the money calls leading into Friday, dealers were deep out of the money on their calls. And that means they had deep, long share positions to hedge those deep in the money calls. Now that those calls have been unwound, they pulled out their long share hedges on that. So we've taken out another stabilizing force in the market. Hence, we created another reason for the market to go down. Um, short covering rallies, this is important to understand. Short covering rallies, which could be from traders closing their long puts or whatever reasons, or IV coming down. Short covering rallies do not offer stability. We could see this, but they do not offer stability. That's not the same as people buying the market. A Vanna trade, a pot, like a Vanna unwind trade where implied volatility comes down, does not provide stability to the markets. It does make the markets rip, but that doesn't mean people are buying. Real money buyers and calls being bought above current prices, that's what stabilizes markets. So my overall assessment is, don't think any significant rally can manifest today until the FOMC, because traders are going to be holding those long puts going into the FOMC. If you're hoping for a heavy bounce and stocks ripping higher after hour, you're going to be disappointed. Keep your eyes on VIX at 32 pre-market. Markets are in fear mode. They're in fear mode. My suspicion, traders are buying short-dated protection till the FOMC. So they're buying Wednesday or Friday puts, basically. And they will unwind that if the FOMC doesn't further spook the markets. Um, with that being said, I'm just saying avoid your long exposure. Be very cautious. If you do decide to get long stocks, buy downside protection immediately. In other words, buy puts immediately. Um, between me and you, uh, it's not the time to be adding long exposure in stocks except for a few. And I mean, select few stocks. In other words, do not be buying this dip in stocks. We're not out of the woods yet. If Jay says we're going to increase the tapering, we're going to increase interest rates, that's going to spook markets even further. And then we could see a bigger sell-off here. So what about, is, I, I, I've yes. got a name that uh, you've brought up before mm -hmm. that had a nice little run mm -hmm. that I'm now starting to look at again. Giving you some clues. Do you have any guesses? Tech or non-tech? Non-tech. This might narrow Tart it down. I just, I, I realized as I was describing that a lot of stocks have had a nice run and now have drawn back and are starting to look a little bit interesting, but it's a non-tech stock. Target? No, but that, that's, we can look at Target as well. It's in the energy space. Yeah, good question. I give up. <laughs> Peabody, BTU. Okay. Okay, we can look at this. I got to be honest, though. I personally am not looking for any long exposure just because stocks are cheap right now. I am not going to actually take any new longs until the FOMC. So you got to understand that we have an exceptionally fragile market right now. We don't have real money flows stabilizing the downside. That's why SPY has sold off so aggressively today. That's why Q sold off so aggressively. 
That's why AMD and all these others have sold off aggressively. So we do not have a stable market. And when you're in negative gamma mode, that means that volatility can swing heavily up and down. And it can often be both, which means that you could see a rip and think, oh, this is the rip. The markets are rebounding. And then the market comes back with equal or greater force to the downside. As long as traders are going to hold long puts through the FOMC, I don't want to be buying. I'd rather wait till the event comes out and then analyze it and then decide, see how the market reacts and then be like, okay, let's get long now or let's get short now, depending upon that. Right now, I only have five tickers in my portfolio, four long, one is short. And all the longs I have all have downside protection. I have no interest in any today, but let's look at Unity or BTU. Let's take a look. So let me pull up the options data on this. And then let me pull up the live data, BTU. Okay, so just looking at today's option statistics on BTU, we've seen 4,500 calls on the day, 1,100 puts, so it's 5,600. About four and a half to out of every uh, six options are calls. So that's bullish. Sounds now. bullish. It does sound bullish, but, and here's the but. So prior to today, BTU had 102,000 calls and 48,000 puts. So that's 150,000 options, which means that today's 5,000 options represents what? Two and a half percent of the total flows. That's low. That means that traders, institutional traders or anybody, they're not rushing in to buy these right now. It is more calls than puts, but they're not rushing in in droves. So the options volume is low. What's my minimum threshold for our to kind of feel like, hey, I want to day trade this option or short term buy it. I want to see the flows for today, the volumes for today, be at least 10% of the total open interest. This is two and a half percent. So it tells me in and of itself that's not traders aren't rushing in to buy this. On top of its share volume is not bad. It's 4.6 million versus the 10 day average of 5.6, which means that by the time we hit the close, we should be at the 10 day in terms of share volume. That's decent, but again, we're low on options. So I'm not really seeing this from an option standpoint. On top of it, we just had, as of Friday, 65% of the options in BTU expire. So the market is kind of, it's, it's resetting its board as we speak. So today you can expect volatility up and down. In my opinion, if this was this sell-off in the markets was not happening, I would still be cautious on this yet because we haven't really seen the option traders, the smart option traders come in and buy this in droves. So yeah, I would be for now, I wouldn't consider buying until we get much lower, maybe eight and a half, maybe. And even then I wouldn't make it an automatic buy like, oh, I'm taking this price. I'd need to see a transition in the buying and in the flows. So yeah, great question. Yeah, I mean, I'm just uh, while while we're in these choppy markets, uh, as I am looking to add some kind of long exposures, not a lot, but looking on some dips, I'm looking at some more kind of value names compared to the growth tech names. Good. Um, and BTU is one that came across my radar, and I was like, oh, Chris, we've we've talked about this before. Let's take a look at that. But um, if that this same- had a dividend, like if it had a strong dividend, it might be a little bit better candidate. One stock that might be a little bit better in the energy space that does have a good dividend is Vale. So it's in the- Oh, Vale's been strong. Yeah, it's been strong and it's in steel. It's actually holding its own today. Like here's the open and it's just kind of consolidating. So Vale to me is a little bit better option because 
let's say you were to buy it here and it was go down to 11. Okay, fine. Maybe it takes a month or two to get back, but you're going to collect a decent dividend, 7.27%. And so I think steel is in a good place. When I look at the options on Vail, let's see if they have a little more buying interest. So I am seeing some dark pool interest on Vail, which is solid. Um, let's look at the flows today. Flows today, 27,000 calls, 15,000 puts, 43,000 options total. That is actually under the normal volume. So Vail is actually a heavy option stock. 1.4 million calls prior to today and 1.04 million puts. So this is a 2.5 million option stock and it's only doing 43,000. So again, option traders, the smart option traders are saying, eh, we may like this. We're buying more calls and puts, but we're not going to rush in droves we are going to wait till FOMC. And so if FOMC comes out very benign and we see markets really starting to rally, then I think Vail might be a good one to consider then. Not today. I don't see any stock today that I would want to buy with the intention of holding it for more than a day. Are there day trades? Are there scalps out there? Sure. You're in and out in 5, 10, 20 minutes. Fine. We can talk about that. But in terms of buying stocks and holding them for days, or through FOMC, I have nothing that I would want to add exposure on. And simply because of, in my opinion, there is a possibility that, you know, we could be entering into bubble territory. We're not there yet, but we could be. And so because of that, I think long exposure is, is dangerous right now. I think it's so very dangerous. Can we can we go ahead and, and take a look at uh, maybe Apple's option chain? Of course, uh, gearing ahead, I believe Apple reports on Thursday. I, I'm just curious because I know I know you mentioned earlier that you can see that a lot of options traders are kind of adding hedges on the on the short side. Um, but something like Apple, I mean, Apple tends to trade well into earnings and after earnings. Okay, so let me show you the option chain today on Apple or the option statistics. So right now, 565K calls, 533K puts, almost dead even, 1.1 million options. Now, prior to today, Apple had about 4.3 million calls and 3.9 million puts. So also relatively close, but that is 8.3 million options. So we're at right now about 12% of the total volume, which is solid, but you can look at the option traders. They are not overwhelmingly bullish. They are buying a fair amount of put protection because this is almost dead even. This is almost dead even right now, the, the ratio of calls to puts in this case. So I think even option traders are basically saying on Apple, there's strong volumes, which suggests they're active, but at the same time, they are not overly bullish. The options market is not overly bullish. And so caution on that. Now, let me look at some of the deeper stats on this. I don't have, let's see if I have the updated data on Apple. Like what's the next biggest expiry? Probably February 18th. Probably. Let's see. Yeah. I mean, I imagine this Friday would have a lot of volume too, just with the earnings, but definitely uh, th those monthlies probably more so. Yeah. I do. Assume. I actually have to make a correction. I refreshed the data. Prior to today's trading, call volume was 3.1 million and put volume was 2.6 million. So I have to, that didn't refresh. 12% right now of the total options in the universe in Apple 
about 12% of them are going to expire on the February 18th expiry. So Apple is a thing to me that I feel like when Apple starts to get into like 150, 146, assuming there was no earnings this week, I think it starts to become a really good buy at that point. Mostly because option dealer and market maker hedging activities means that they're no longer going to be selling as it goes down. They'll either reduce their short shares or they'll actually start buying shares as it goes down to a certain point. So I think Apple becomes interesting once we get towards 150, um, you know, 149, like between 149 and say like 151, I think it becomes interesting. Um, but I also see that Apple has resistance, pretty strong resistance at 170. So the further it goes towards 170, the harder that hill cl that hill climb becomes because the dealers will actually be selling as it climbs into that 170 resistance. So I like Apple from a long-term perspective. From a long-term perspective, it is hard not to like the starts. Like in everybody's hedge fund portfolio, everybody's mutual fund, like Apple is one of the most widely owned stocks across the planet. And so it's hard not to like Apple. But if I'm going to trade this, I'll wait till a little bit more of a dip and post FOMC for that to, for me to take that play. So yeah. Got it. And wait, we have FOMC this Wednesday at 2 p.m., correct? Correct. Correct. Beautiful. Um, all right, let's check the chat, see if we've got anything that people are looking at. Yeah, well, I, I'm just monitoring kind of the overall markets right now. It does look like um, we've gotten a bounce. Yeah, definitely, okay, you can, you can definitely call it a bounce, right? At one point on the queues, we were down uh, 4.5%, now only down 2%, so about a 2.5% bounce. But we've mm -hmm. seen this before over the past couple of weeks where um, for, for a brief moment of time, maybe an hour or two hours, things look better, things look like they're turning around, then we kind of puke into the close and give all those gains up. So look, it's about to be 2 p.m. here. We've got about 10 more minutes left on this show, so we can certainly take some stocks from the chat. Um, but I would implore all of you guys, if you guys are watching the markets today, watch what we do from, from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., because that might be kind of a glimpse into the, the sentiment that we'll see for the rest of the week. I'm not saying, oh, if we're strong for the next two hours and we close in the green that we're it, – it's green or blue skies ahead and we're all in the clear no i'm, I'm saying more um if we, if we do have that kind of uh sell-off into the close that we've seen the past few trading days it, that'll be just, just more of the same but if we do close into the green then i think that's significant right now i think it look i, I don't think know it'll what's mean going on. something it could be due to a market on close and balance or something like that but we also have to understand that the flows right now, if there are heavy amounts of flows, they're probably into buying protection or short-term protection or short-term options because I think most institutional traders are saying, okay, we don't want to put any new exposure on until FOMC. Other than that, once FOMC happens, I think traders will feel like they have the clear to either, hey, look for a rally or look for the markets to continue to sell off. So I think you're going to see some positions today going into the close, and that may cause a significant unwind or not. VIX might have something to do with that. You know, VIX hit 38. And keep in mind, when VIX goes up, implied volatility is going up. That means that options get more and more expensive. But eventually, that runs out of steam because eventually you're kind of getting to the top of the pyramid that it becomes so expensive that only a few people can buy it up at that price. And once you start to run out of people to pay that kind of price, then it can pull back. So you can get this IV crush or what we call a Vanna-induced rally. 
Havana induced rally is basically when IV comes down, Vanna is delta sensitivity to changes in implied volatility. So if, if IV comes down, then those options become cheaper. That allows trade, that actually causes a Vanna rally because dealers are no longer long volatility, volatility is coming down. If volatility is coming down, traders are buying less put protection. That creates a Vanna induced rally. So that could happen. And this, what we could be seeing right here is definitely a VIX. It could be because of VIX getting crushed. This happened at 920. Look at spies. I'm willing to bet on the five minute chart. Right around 9:20 is when you saw spies rebound. There, there's 9:20. That's the bottom of the day. So this rally we could be seeing right now could simply have only to do with, or mostly to do with, VIX selling off. That could be. We just have to understand right now we are in what we call backwardation in terms of the volatility surface, which means that the short term volatility is actually above the long term volatility, and that's not normal. Contango is normal. You know, you're 90 days, you're six months out. Premiums are much higher and have higher IV than your one week or one month out. Right now, we're seeing that inverted backwardation. So IV right now, short term, is actually higher than it is longer term. And so that could create a volatility trade. But yeah, right now, we might just be seeing a, a spy rally simply due to VIX selling off. Got it. Um, I, I see someone in the chat asking about lows. Do we have a second? Can we take a look at lows? Sure. Uh, ticker yeah, L-O-W. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Showing some strength today. I mean, green while everything else is in the red. Uh, well, I guess everything was in the red. I don't know. I haven't checked that many individual names over the past, uh, like since I've been on the show. Let me do that right now. Yeah, okay. So looking at lows... Um, this is somewhat of a low option stock, no pun intended. Prior to today, 62,000 calls, 72,000 puts, which means traders have been buying puts into this sell-off, basically. We don't have a whole lot of options on lows expiring short-term. You know, nothing for a while, so you don't have to worry about short-term expiries. In other words, option traders are not making short-term bets on lows. They're making medium and long-term bets on lows. Um, I feel like lows probably... If spies kind of stalls out here, I don't see lows getting past 229 or 235 of the day. Do I think now is a good time to be buying lows? I would be waiting for a little bit lower prices on lows. I would probably be waiting for more like 210 to 200 because at that price, dealers actually are no longer selling as it goes down. They're actually unwinding their short hedges. And if you look at that kind of makes sense because if you look at where that kind of 200 to like 210 areas, there's all this price action here. There's a lot of liquidity here. So if the stock were to sell off, dealers are probably running into a lot of option positions at that point where they're no longer selling into that. They're actually buying that dip. So I think Lowe's is actually not bad. I They even have a dividend 1.42%. So yeah, lower price on Lowe's, I'm interested. Keep in mind, Lowe's and HD had a really, really good run. And so this unwind over the last three weeks is kind of kind of undoing some of the exuberance that we saw during this period right over here. Yeah. Got it. Um, let's see. We've got about three minutes left. Let's see if we've got any other. Uh, no, I don't want to. AMC. I don't know if that's worth looking at right now. Um, I already, Didn't I give my uh, uh, analysis on AMC and GM, GME this year? 
Didn't I already I mention that? I think you did. I think we I think we did that last time. Um, yeah, which is before MLK Day. So just to re just to recap, before MLK Day, Spencer asked me, "You don't want to buy tech?" And I'm like, "No, I do not want to buy tech now." That was very prescient because tech sold off massively. Um, I had said that GME. Sorry, Go ahead, sorry. Okay, so GME. I said GME this year. I think is going to fifty, and I think AMC is going to hit twelve dollars this year. I don't know if they stay there. But I think GME is going to 15 and I think AMC is going to 12. Sorry, apes. Um, I'm not going to lie to you just to make you feel better. I'm going to tell you what my analysis is. Um, Ooh, Daniel's think, asking in the chat about dart inputs. Long dart inputs, DRI? Yeah. I, I'm looking at a long-term chart oh, on this right now. Yeah, like that. And it does look a, a little like toppy up there, but this is more more of a value play than like a tech growth play. So I, I just don't know if you're going to get the same sort of sell-off that we've see, seen in other, yeah. other stocks. Value blue chips are going to do much better than growth. You know, when you have rising interest rates, the financing requirements for those growth stocks to growth tech stocks go up massively and increase in financing costs is a big hit to growth stocks. So value and blue chips tend to do well in these types of situations or international stocks that are less exposed. Um, you actually get a good dividend on this. So just to let you know, Darden is what we call a low option stock, low volume, meaning that right now, prior to today, there was only 11,500 calls and 13,500 puts. So 26, 27,000 options. That's low. That's below my threshold for wanting to trade it. My minimum open interest threshold for all the options for that stock is 100,000. So this is sub that. So I'm not excited about trading this from an option standpoint. But let's play the game and say, hey, let's say liquidity was good and stuff like that. Would this be worth buying puts? Okay, so you have slightly more puts than calls. How many of these options are expiring? So the biggest option expiry coming up for February 18th, about 55% of the options are going to be expiring on the 18th of February. So not right now, but as we get close to that, a huge amount of options are going to come off the board, so expect volatility. Looking at this right now, I actually think Darden from an option standpoint is probably supported. Assuming like, let's say spies goes nowhere through FOMC and nowhere after FOMC. I actually think this is at a support zone that I think is actually has a decent probability of holding. So I wouldn't be buying puts on this until, until you saw Darden around 127 and a half. You see, you see Darden around 127 and a half. Okay. I would buy those puts assuming they're at a decent price. If they're at a decent price, then I would buy it. If it loses 130, 129, I could see darting going down to 120. So you would want to buy puts that would be able to make decent money and recover their premium costs if we went all the way down to 120 or even 125, they could still make some good money. I don't think you need to buy put protection on them yet. So we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Um, but if you start to get a... You know, daily close below this wick right here, then I'd probably want to be buying puts. Yeah. Yeah. Okie dokie. Yeah, this is one that's actually uh, strong in my heart because I this was one of the stocks that I originally bought puts on at, on the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, when I kind of first got into option trading, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that was like the first time I played blackjack and made a bunch of money. I turned like eight hundred dollars in my checking account to like ten grand and was like, "Oh, this options trading thing is easy." Uh, looking back now, I had no clue what I was doing. Had no clue that Darden was 
not a great stock to buy options on. I just got lucky and I had puts and the market crashed. So the, the share price was going in my favor as well as the VIX going up. Um, and I really did it. going up. You're, you're long gamma because you're long puts. You got convexivity on that trade is what happened. When you're long puts and the market sells off with increasing IV, you're going to get convexivity to your profits. Yeah. So oh, my you, God. It was right, awesome. Right place, right time. Right place, right time. I remember looking at my like Robinhood account and being up like $3,000 on the day and saying like, oh, if I do this every day, I'll make $750,000 this year, 250 trading days, like thinking that was sustainable. Um, obviously, it is not. And since then, I've learned a lot about the markets and option trading specifically. Um, and I wish I could go back to those days. And I, I mean, who knows? Maybe if I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't have played that move like I did. Possibility. But, yeah, but either way, it was a fun time, um, and now I'm probably going to be trading options for the rest of my life. Good, good. Well, I hope to see you in the Benzing Options School. I hope you can pop in for some classes as well. I will. That'll be fun. I'll do that. I'll make sure to do that. Cool. Awesome. All right, Anything guys. else are we done for the day? Nope. We are past 2 p.m. That means we are finished for the day. Chris Capri, Second Skies Trading, as well as the big Benzinga Option School. Uh, links for the Option School should be in the description. I'll go ahead and post them in the chat as well. Everyone should go check that out. You have no reason not to. I think you can sign up for the course and we'll give you a, a refund back if for whatever reason you decide, hey, I don't like this teacher that much. Um, but Chris, thank you for hopping on. Good seeing you. Be, be well. Of course. All right, guys, again, that was Chris Capri. Join us on the Benzinga Option School if you're like myself and you need to learn a little bit more.